Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another special edition of the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! This being part two of our look at the 2020 Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame class. The great Brian last here, you there! We have more great panel discussions for you today. We're going to have Fredo Esparza and Roy Lusher. Also, we have Alan Blackstock, John Boucher, and Brian Solomon, as well as Bertrand Bear and Greg Oliver, another action-packed show with wrestling history and Hall of Fame talk. If you haven't checked out part one, check it out. It is available right now at 605pod.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Just one note here at the top of the show. Again, there's a lot of moving parts when you put together these panel discussions when people are in different countries, on different phones, may not have the best internet connection at times, all sorts of moving parts. Please excuse any subpar audio. We did our best to clean up what we have, but at moments, it may not be perfect audio. Nothing that will take away from this great wrestling talk, but I do want to apologize for anyone who feels that the audio at times isn't up to normal standards. But again, I don't think any bad audio can change what is a fantastic series of roundtable discussions. And with that, let's kick it off right now, part two, with Fredo Esparza and Roy Lusher. We continue our look at the 2020 Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame class and ballot, and I'm very happy to have back a panel from last year, just like Dan Farron and Marty Goldstein, another one that was very popular. On the line right now, I have two of Lucha Libre's biggest historians in the United States, two of Lucha Libre's biggest champions here in the United States. First, from the city of world champions, the noted historian, Fredo Esparza. Fredo, how are you today? I'm glad you introduced me that way, Brian. I'm really glad. It took a lot of hard work for us to win. (laughs) There's no other way to introduce you except as being from the city of world champions. And of course, speaking of champions... A man who has had a championship schedule lately. I think he has spent more time in Mexico than any wrestling fan in the last several months. That is your friend and mine, Roy Lusher. Roy, thanks for being back on the show. Oh, it's an honor. This is definitely the one show that I'll always, you know, stop what I'm doing and uh, partake in. And yes, in the past year, it's been an amazing, you know, year so far. I mean, we've had the ups and downs with the virus, but I have been to Mexico twice. I bought a home here in Sacramento with my wife. My son took off to the Air Force, you know, just had ups and downs. But luckily, the ups have been a lot more than the downs and just completely blessed and happy to be here for sure. Well, before we talk about the results this year, who got into the Hall of Fame, and I'm really happy to have both you guys here because I think it's important for a lot of the fans who love Lucha, a lot of the fans who may not know that much about Lucha, to talk about the inductees this year with you guys. Let's talk about your actual ballots. Roy, let me start with you. Who did you vote for this year? Okay, so a lot of this is going to sound similar to anyone who listened to the show last year. I voted in three categories other than the non-wrestlers first one I did was modern performers in the U.S. and Canada. Same as last year, JYD, Sergeant Slaughter, Kerry Von Erich. I just, I'm very passionate that those three deserve to be in, especially Slaughter with the mainstream name that he has and JYD with his legendary Mid-South run. Wrestlers in Japan, I voted for uh, similar to last year, Yoshiaki Fujiwara. 
based on the you know submission stuff that he's done, the way that he's revered by the public there. Uh, the, I mean, he's even got one of the most common submission holds uh, worldwide in pro wrestling named after him that, you know, even the WWE announcers slip and say, hey, Fujidewara armbar. So, you know, it's like a Fez press. It's it's common throughout wrestling. And also Akira Tawe, um, who I, I vehemently believe deserves to be in there. He may not have been at the level of, you know, Misawa Kobashi Kawada, but who was it? But I still believe he's a Hall of Famer. On to Mexico. I voted for five people, uh, one being a trio. The Los Brazos, I, I voted for. Also, Medico Asesino. Um, who actually I thought was already in, to be honest with you. I saw his name on there and voted for him. Sangre Chicana, who the more I see his stuff from the mid-80s, I just, you know, fall in love with him. And uh, everything that he does in the ring, you just how smooth he was. Uh, Pirata Morgan, who I just, whether it be singles matches, trios, uh, all everything. He's The guy's just amazing. And the crazy part was, the last show that I attended as far as pro wrestling was a show in a junkyard for Zona 23 uh, in Mexico City back in March. And Pirata Morgan was in the semi taking light tube, you know, and car hood bumps and stuff. So, I mean, the guy's, you know, I think he's 60 or somewhere close to it. I mean, he's still doing the hardcore stuff. And then uh, Carlos Lagarde again who I fully believe deserved to be in there. And um, I'll let you be the one that, you know, says it, but yeah, absolutely. Carla Flagarty. And then on the non-wrestler section, I know you could vote for multiple, but I just voted for four. Ted Turner, Don Owen, Larry Matisic, and Joe Higuchi are the four uh, non-wrestlers that I voted for. Fredo, who was on your ballot this year? Well, this year I started off with the U S Canada candidates and this time around, I went with Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, last year, I went for Kerry. This year, I went for Slaughter just because I've been watching way more, um, a lot of Mid-Atlantic Championship wrestling. So, And, I mean, the more I watch of Sergeant Slaughter, even like in the mid-'80s when he wrestled, he had a match with Stan Hansen that I thought was really good. So uh, the more I've seen of Sergeant Slaughter, the more I've been even more impressed with. So I had to, I had to have it this time around. Um, Japan candidates, I had Akira Tawe once again and Jun Akiyama this time. Um, obviously, my vote counted for once, actually twice, because, I mean, obviously, uh, <laughs> we're talking about you know, the other stuff. There's a little bit more uh, election that was a little more important that went on earlier in the, you know, in the month. Um, but, you know, Jun Akiyama, awesome. Both of these guys, Tally, like, like Roy said, I mean, everybody kind of, he was part of that, you know, the, the four pillars. And I think a lot of people overlook his work just because they kind of, to me, it's kind of more... Um, I think his body type and the fact that the other three were so much more um, physically imposing that, um, or impressive, if you will, that he kind of gets overlooked. But I mean, Tally, if you watch, you start rewatching a lot of that All Japan wrestling, or if you've not seen it and want to watch it for the first time, he is really awesome. Same thing with Akiyama. I think Akiyama later on um, really was more, I think he's probably more of a guy that the more newish fans got to watch as he's got still around, still active wrestling, um, and he's still very good. Um, one of those guys that still continues to be very impressive. Um, Mexico candidates is where I really filled out my ballot. Um, again, much like Roy's surprise, uh, medical assassino. I was very surprised that I, I had to double, I check, I think Wikipedia, 
all these different places just to make sure that he hadn't already been. Um, maybe it was a mistake by Dave that he had him on, in the ballot again. Um, turns out this was his first time in the ballot, and he definitely is somebody that belongs in this um, it, to be considered, just to be considered, but also to be somebody that should be in. Uh, Los Brazos, I voted for as well. Caristico, once again, I think Caristico is probably going to be like, I'll probably be one of the few people that keeps voting for him nonstop, um, just because I don't think people are, are still getting over the pack over that, you know, that brief run that he had in WWE. So um, for whatever reason, they just, uh, they it's it's hard for people to overlook that, even if Lucha fans have a hard time overlooking that failure. Um, he's made it out of that. I mean, he's been very good ever since, you know, past that. Um, Sangre Chicana, a guy I've been championing for the longest time, probably since I first had internet access and started writing or like posting about Lucha Libre. Sangre Chicano is always one of the guys that I was I would constantly tell people they should watch and you know and this was like in the late 90s when he was still wrestling and he pretty much was done so I think a lot of people thought I was insane uh, fortunately there's been a lot of 80s footage that has popped up online and you no know, on video so there's been a lot of um, a lot of people uh, familiarizing themselves with a younger Sangre Chicana so um, they kind of opened up their eyes and seeing that he really was an excellent wrestler. Um, after that, I had Karloff Lagarde, uh, you know, the guy dominated a, a, a division in Mexico for like back when, you know, championships mattered. Um, the welterweight division was his for, you know, for several years, um, just a just a pillar of that division. And, um, I think he's somebody that, um, I'm very happy that he made it at this point in time. I think as, as we get more, and that's another thing that you get a lot with Lucha Libre is that we're still getting a lot of, um, results. Uh, stories, you know, a bunch of like different information that we're getting from Mexico still at this moment, just because there's so much that hasn't been um, revealed yet. That it's, um, I think the more we catch that we start posting online, you're going to see a lot of people kind of realizing that, you know, hey, this guy was really a great wrestler. And I think Lagarde is kind of, he's already at that point, but I think it's even going to go even further as we find more information on him. Uh, and finally, I had Pirata Morgan and Huracan Ramirez. Um, Pirata Morgan, like like Roy said, um, still going at it. Uh, but I think a lot of people like if you didn't see him, like now you see him, he's pretty much a guy who's more of a hardcore wrestler, or, you know, an older veteran who kind of you know isn't what he what, what he was when he was younger. When he was younger, the guy was a fantastic wrestler. I, I don't think I don't think I don't think people realize how great of a worker he was, um, and a huge draw. Like in, in like when he really got the, an opportunity to be a, a big star. In, in CMLL, he was a, a very big um, draw in the early 90s. Uh, and Huracan Ramirez, I mean, without Huracan Ramirez, I think there's a lot of, um, he kind of brought along the high-flying style of, of Lucha Libre, um, him and Rayo de Jalisco. Uh, one, one of the, really two of the early um, innovators of high-flying wrestling. I think he's another, I think him far more than Lagarde. Um, Lagarde getting in. He's kind of like the guy just because he has he has the the record of being a champion and all this stuff. I think with Ramirez, you're probably going to have to see more of his as, as we find more results, more information on him. You'll probably see a little bit more of him coming like, you know, getting a little bit more of a recognition as somebody who really was uh, not just a, a, an innovator, but a, a significant part of Lucha Libre in the 60s, 70s and, you know, so on. Uh, as far as non-wrestlers, I had five this time around. I think I stuck with about the same group. Uh, Dave Brown. Bob Cottle, Ted Turner. I think Ted Turner was a different one from this time around from last year. Grand Wizard. And I did vote for Mike today. 
I was one of those people who voted for Mike Tenay. Um, and, you know, a lot of people probably, I don't know, I kind of, I kind of wasn't sure if people would like see that as weird. Um, but to me, as far as just being a reporter and announcer, but also not just that, but the fact that I think of anybody who like covered a specific area of professional wrestling and his was Lucha Libre. I think he reached more of a larger audience to introduce fans to Lucha Libre. And really, if not for him, I don't think a lot of people would have like, um, you know, not just the WCW Luchadors, but when he did that, seg- those features on Luchador, on Lucha Libre and the Luchadors, um, you wouldn't have had a lot of um, a lot of fans who would have like said, hey, maybe I will watch this stuff. Maybe I'll give CMLL and AAA a chance. And, you know, a lot of that early group of um, fans from like the early, the late 90s, early 2000s who got to watch Miano 3 versus Atlantis and the mystical era, uh, really, I think they kind of came from the whole, um, you know, Mike Tenay and the, you know, the WCW luchadors that really, you know, brought, made it, made it a little easier for them to get, um, you know, used to Lucha Libre, which is a, a style that you hear from a lot of fans that um, it's very difficult for them to get into for whatever reason they could get into uh, Japanese wrestling and other stuff. But uh, Lucha Libre is kind of like a little bit more foreign for them. Uh, so I think they, that, I think that's something that Tanae really helped, um, you know, open the the door for a lot of um, fans to get into that style. You know, it raises an interesting question, uh, what you were just saying, because I think all three of us are probably labeled as historians when we vote. Do you think other historians should be eligible for the Observer Hall of Fame? Guys who, in doing research, in talking about different things, have exposed a larger audience to wrestling history. Guys who spent a lot of time going through results and finding results in the days before everything was readily available on a computer, when you had to go through microfilm, when you had to go hear stories from people. Should historians be eligible for the Hall of Fame? I think they should. I mean, I think there's a lot of guys that, I mean, you just look at like some of the guys who have gotten into the, or I mean, how many people knew about like Martin Cartagena or the Medico Asesino, people like that. And there's somebody who actually did the research on those guys, or even like American wrestlers that, that, that are, weren't as familiar i think there was there was a wrestler that i found um god i can't remember his name now he was a turkish wrestler and uh for whatever reason i he was he was uh in mexico and the one that they were he wasn't in mexico but they were talking about they they did a feature on him and they told the story about um about his career and how he died in on a ship going back to his country and when i wrote i i I i tweeted about this and somebody told me, you know, they actually have the wrong information on that wrestler. It's another wrestler that actually went through all that. Cause I thought it was like crazy. You know, this guy, you know, he turned all this, like all the, all the money he won, he turned it into gold coins. Um, I'll look, I'll have to look it up cause I can't remember his name. Um, but, um, he turned into gold coins and then like he made championship belts out of them so he could carry them back to his country. And, but the person that they were talking about. The person they were talking about in this Mexican in, in Boxy Lucha wasn't the guy that, that actually did this. So uh, so somebody online told me uh, uh, on Twitter told me, you know, that's not the guy. It's actually this guy. So what I ended up doing was I actually ended up looking up on online. And there's actually this story about the, the guy who actually did that. And it's a very interesting story. Both these guys ended up having very interesting stories. One of them like was like a, like in the military and did a bunch of other stuff. And but this other guy, the the actual guy who I was reading about, had this really crazy story. And I thought, you know, how do you find out about this stuff? And it's really because somebody actually wrote it down, wrote down the history of this professional wrestler, and now you know about him and you find out about him. And you know, unfortunately, I just can't remember his name. You know, if it was a Mexican wrestler, I would obviously remember his name. But Turkish wrestler, it's very difficult for uh, 
for me to remember. But, you know, it's this is how you learn about other wrestling. And, you know, it opens up, you know, people's eyes that, you know, there's not just like, you know, there's not just like a, a WWE. There's not just a like a, a Hulk Hogan, a Ric Flair. There's other wrestlers that that are around. And you not you don't just learn about these wrestlers. You also learn about their their their, their career, not just their careers, but their lives. You find out that a lot of these guys had very interesting lives beyond professional wrestling. Um, I'm sure if you've heard, you've talked to Kurt, he probably has mentioned uh, Charles Guayo and his crazy, uh, the, how, how much research he's done on him. Um, it's it 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 brings up a lot of um, interesting stories. A lot of um, you know, you learn a lot, and I think it's some that's that's part of um, I think that's part of wrestling and, and learning about um, about uh, you know the what what the, this 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 thing that we all enjoy that that we love to follow that I, it, it brings more interesting stories to us. And I do think a lot of historians deserve that. And like I said, Mike Tenet, I think as far as like, as far as us historians, I think he had the, 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 the no, I don't think any of us are going to get, um, we're not going to get on WCW, you know, Nitro and, and talk to like four to 6 million people a week and tell them about, you know, or however many people he was talking to on a, on a weekly basis. And, you know, mention about, you know, tell stories about the Villanos, Ray Mendoza, uh, you know, Elijo del Santo, Ray Mysterio Jr. and how he, he comes from a wrestling family. You know, so he gets to introduce you to a lot. Of, he got to introduce a lot of people to to a, a, a whole new, um, you know, group of wrestlers, you know, a little bit of history uh, on, on individuals who, you know, a lot of the luchadors that went to WCW had, um, they weren't just, you know, they, were this, they weren't just new. They were actually like second generation wrestlers, third generation wrestlers. So you get to hear about their families and all this stuff. So I, I think I think a historian definitely belong definitely deserves to um be considered into a, a wrestling observer hall of fame. I mean, you get that in um I think in baseball they get reporters in 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 hall of fame. So I, I definitely think they deserve it. What do you think, Roy? Um, I'm actually same boat as as I believe you guys too. Uh, someone like Matt Farmer, Jesus, all the work that he's done researching all the UWA, El Toreo, uh, Arena Neza, all that stuff over the decades and all, all the footwork he's done. I mean, <laughs> Matt Farmer definitely would be somebody like if that were to come up that I would um, advocate for and all the work that, that he does and you know, someone like Cubs fan for the current. I mean, like 15, 20 years from now, you know, Cubs fans going to be the, the Matt farmer, you know, the way, the way that we look back or the, a, a future fan is going to look back like, wow, he, he lived through all this or he saw it or he researched it. So, you know, guys like that, you know, I definitely agree. And also remember too, you have the big uh, names and a lot of the names would, past me but i'm sure fredo would be able to to say who they were but the people that are the historians in mexico that work for boxy lucha or the other big magazines or the other um the the ones that write books down there uh or websites and all that stuff you know the the work that they do is amazing too so yeah i would definitely advocate for that well you know you know like um the guy who came up with so many of the characters um hector valero i don't know if he's in in the hall of fame but there's there's a lot of guys that that i think they definitely belong um i think the only thing i would be worried is like like if you start mentioning people that are kind of like from our generation that we kind of talk to um a lot of them are kind of uh they're very modest sort of speak so i i would i think they would be worried about like not getting any votes 
So uh, I think that would be their one concern. But I think they would. I mean, why not? I mean, I think we all I think there's an appreciation to their work that maybe they they think that is um, undervalued. But I think it, it it's something that definitely deserves to get um, some credit. Uh, I think even just being nominated would be something that I think they would really enjoy, uh, especially the ones that are still around that are still doing it. Stevie Ohi has done so much research um, yeah. for so long. I mean, see, I look at that class first. I look at Stevie Ohi. I look at J. Michael Kenyon. I look at a Fred Hornby, a Jim Melby, guys from that era. And I know Jim Melby's been on the ballot, but yeah. I, you know, and he also has a little bit of the magazine background as much as the research and historian background, but. So much of what we know is because of the work these guys did. Yeah. And it's easier to build upon it now because of modern technology, but it's also easier to build upon it because they did it. They laid the foundation. And I think there is an interesting discussion to have whether these guys, these historians and and the guys who really put out, you know, put out little books and stuff that didn't make a ton of money. You know, Fred Hornby did a, Anthony a Rocca record book and a Buddy Rogers record book and a Gene Stanley record book. Uh, Yoey put out the Strangler Lewis book he did. He also actually put out a collection of the Fred Hornby Buddy Rogers record books. But, you know, like I said, these guys, they weren't making a lot of money with this stuff if they made any money at all. It was more about just getting the information out into the universe. And, you know, I mean, talking about it with you guys here today, I think there is a legitimate argument to look at the important historians. I, You know, again, the way I would avoid modern wrestlers, and we'll talk about the ballot in a bit, the way I wouldn't vote for Kenny Omega right now, because he's in the middle of his career, I don't know if I would vote for a Matt Farmer. Nothing against Matt. He does great research. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, he's still doing it. It's still kind of, not that anyone ever stops doing it, but I guess maybe there should be like a cutoff, like historians over the age of 50 or, or something. But I think that first class, all the early wrestling historians, uh, early wrestling newsletter publishers, Burt Ray and yeah. um, Ron Dobratz, like, I think there should be a place for these pioneers because, you know, before there was an observer and anything else, there were these guys doing this, Terry Justice. I think there should be a place for historians and pioneers when it comes to wrestling publications, underground wrestling publications. Well, you know, like Bill After, wasn't he? I think he's been. I don't know if he's in the Hall of Fame, but he's he got been in. in. Yeah, he, yeah, got, he in. got. Yeah, I think. I think it definitely belongs. Like, I mean, just because, and, and you know, honestly, like, I think those magazines were an introduction for a lot of us. But at the same time, the more you want to learn, and then you realize that a lot of stuff is kind of like not really, you know, legitimate. Like, there's a lot of like a lot of the interviews weren't really like the the wrestlers actually speaking. Um, so you end up like uncovering all this other work that these other guys did where they, you know, not just results and, and, and what these guys did. They probably even interviewed a few of these guys to like, you know, talk about their careers. So I think they definitely belong. I think there's a lot of um, I think there's there there is a good case for a lot of those guys. I do agree with you. Like, I wouldn't want to like, like, like I said, I wouldn't want like if it's somebody that's similar age as mine or, or more or less, I think it, it'd be and especially if I know them, it would feel a little weird just because. You know, there's they're they're still doing the work, and you're not you're kind of you're kind of feeling like maybe they should just do a little bit more. Although, no, I think it's I think it, I think in a small part you kind of want to honor them while they're still alive. So I think that that makes yeah, that's a true sense. too. That's true too. I mean, like the Clawmaster, he's gone. Yeah. You know, he's not here anymore. But look at the research he did. People are still using that. People are still yeah. going to his old website to look at those results to this day. Um, you know, and then someone like Tim Hornbaker, 
who has done yeah. extensive research and, and he has files and he has original documents and put out books and he's still putting out books. He's about to put out a Buddy Rogers biography. After that, he's doing a Ric Flair biography. Oh, wow. He's already done the history of the NWA and, you know, so many different things. I think maybe that the important figures when it comes to documenting wrestling history, I think there really is an important argument to put them in. But on that topic, let's talk a little bit about this year's inductees, because this is a good case of uh, what did Dave say that the Mexican wrestling category has the smartest voters? It was something like that. What did he say? Historically smarter than I think I think he meant that because uh, on, I think most of the people who vote in Lucha tend to do a little more research because you're a lot of the guys that come in, you're not really that familiar with, uh, you know, obviously the more current guys are familiar with like the, like the guys a little bit from the, the, the past, you have to do a little bit more research. So I think that's what he was kind of like uh, hinting at that we're, they're, they're doing a little more, they got to do a little bit more research. Yeah. Well, part of that is that you can normally just go on YouTube and, you know, you want to research someone from Japan or the U S all those videos are readily available. You want to research Carla Flagarde or Rio de Jalisco senior, nothing is going to be on the online, the video, whatever. So you got to dig a little deeper and research championships, masks, hair wins, uh, times they mean evented, you know, Arena Mexico or El Toreo or whatever they did in their career. It's just a completely different ball game when it comes to Mexico. And yeah, it does require a lot more in-depth work with those characters. And I think the Mexican wrestling candidates, the luchadors, have really had an interesting last several years because we've seen what was just a giant category of, I think, either clear-cut Hall of Famers or borderline Hall of Famers that you could easily vote for. I stopped voting for the Mexican wrestling candidates because I thought there was such a logjam. There were too many clear-cut Hall of Famers that it was getting on my nerves you know, to vote for that category because I think almost everyone has a really good argument to be made for them being in the Hall of Fame. And we've seen so many guys in the last few years get in. This year was pretty interesting. Medico Asesino, that is a name that a lot of younger fans, a lot of modern fans may have never heard of. And like you said before, you thought he was in Fredo. So he's certainly one of those people you can consider possibly a historical oversight, someone who maybe should have been in that first class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Talk a little bit about Medico Asesino. What do we need to know about him? Why is he a Hall of Famer? Well, I, I think what you need to know first is that he was really a huge star, not in EMLL, but actually as uh, as part of the competition, their, their, their 50s competition in, in Televicentro. He was like the main star of that promotion. And I think that's probably why a lot of people kind of forget about him because he, he, it, there's more information on EMLL and, you know, the promotion that survives kind of gets to build, you know, the, the legacy of the, of what wrestling is in that country. So a lot of what, what we know about Lucha Libre now is, you know, EMLL from, you know, going back to the thirties and forward, you know, obviously now it's with AAA, you have a little, you have AAA, but most of from the past, it's really EMLL and, um, UWA obviously, but from like the, pre uwa from 75 prior to that it's really all emll so medical assassino kind of gets overlooked because he was obviously in that competition and really the guy was a huge star not just in, he was really the first tv star because in mexico there was no um 
Televisentro, which later became Televisa, was the was the you know the the, the promotion that was actually airing on television. EMLL wasn't; it was actually tele, uh, you know this group, and he was the big star of that promotion. His feuds with Tonina Jackson, you know, he got to work with a lot of the guys from that promote from that promotion. Um, so you know, he had a tag team with Enfermero also. So it it I think a lot of people kind of forgot about him because. Through through history, it's mostly been El Santo, Blue Demon, uh, Rayo de Jalisco, Black Shadow, all these guys who were from the EMLL promotion, you know, the Lucha Roth promotion, and not Televicentro. Obviously, then later on, Medico Asesino made the jump to, um, you know, once they, they banned tel- um, wrestling from television in Mexico City, he made the jump to EMLL. But uh, I think that's kind of why you kind of forget about it. There's really a, a few reasons, that obviously being one, that he was in the competition, but also because he was a heavyweight. And heavyweight wrestlers in Mexico are really kind of like the forgotten weight class. Um, if you're a welterweight or a middleweight, or even like a light heavyweight, you're a, you're you're remembered. You're constantly remembered. Whereas heavyweights, I mean, heavyweights once, I mean, there's only so many that 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 are considered, you know, huge stars. Connect being one of them. Mil Mascaras. Uh, you know, it kind of it starts kind of like Lauren Ciancaras, you know, guys like that. And the heavyweights, it's not a, it's you know, as you go lower. Past, you know, the 70s, you kind of start forgetting who the heavyweights were from that era. So he kind of gets lost in that. Then the other thing is really that he was a, um, I kind of think his, he's one of those guys who kind of was a big star, not just in Mexico, but in the United States, in Texas. Uh, so he kind of split his career in two different territories. And that kind of like, I think a lot of the guys who kind of went through that, they, and don't have television in Mexico, in Mexico City. They um they kind of get forgotten in one territory and end up being more known in Texas. Uh, so you know I think that's kind of like one. I mean, same thing happened with Jose Lotario. I think Jose Lotario, and even though he wasn't as big a star in Mexico, I think there's more people who remember him in Texas and don't realize he was actually a pretty big star in Mexico. But it wasn't like at the level of um, you know if you add that maybe that even adds more to his um, legacy as far as being a, a Hall of Fame level wrestler. But um, it's not something that's you know, there's not as much information from him in Mexico because he mostly wrestled the border area. And then when he did wrestle uh, in Mexico City, it was always for, you know, Televicentro. And, you know, later on in MLL, wasn't that big of a, he wasn't that big as far as, um you know, what he was doing there because people didn't, you know, like I said, heavyweights weren't really that big of a, a thing. Uh, but Medico Asesino, definitely a, a huge star. Um, I think also the other thing was that he, he passed away at a young, I think, 39 years old, 39, 40 years old uh, from cancer. Uh, really a career that 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 really shortened. Uh, you're talking about him going, um, I think he went to an EMLL in the late 50s. And had he not died from cancer, you're really talking about somebody who probably would have, you know, if you look at luchadors, they have, what, 10, 15, 20 years more in their, in their, uh, in their span. So you're probably talking about a guy who would have had you know, the 60s and 70s to add on to his legacy, not just in Mexico, but in Texas, I think he would have been a, 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 I mean, he probably would have been an even far bigger star that we would have remembered just because of his legacy. But unfortunately, that his career was cut short because of um, him dying from cancer, uh, which, you know, was unfortunate. One interesting note, too, about Medico Asesino was, you know, the Texas run was 
Sanka was brought in and Sanka was already a big movie star or whatever. And they had Sanka working in the middle of the card and Medico Asesino was working on the top of the card because of how hot he was. Guys like Santo, Demon, Mascaris, they were the big movie stars that the Mexican fans knew. However, Medico Asesino was the television star. Like people knew him as, you know, the luchador. And a lot of the uh, generation from then that were just coming up up on the scene pattern themselves if they were uh, to become a Rudo, they would pattern themselves after Medico Asesino because he was so smooth and everything he did registered with the fans and he he was very hated. So everything that Asesino did in there just amazing stuff from everything everything that I've always read upon him and he had multiple title matches against Luthez in Texas uh, multiple times for uh, Morris Eagle. I think on one, one of Morris Siegel's anniversary cards he had uh, Dez Asesino uh, as the main event. Yeah and of so, course I, mean, he was, I, I think he we, should note he, we should note here that he was a big star in Houston but obviously here he was just El Medico. That's how most people would yeah. have known him in Texas. Yes, yes, absolutely. The other thing with uh, with uh, Medico Asesinos, him being a heavyweight kind of gave him the benefit of being a big star in uh, in Texas. Uh, if you watch a lot of the the like, I don't know if El Santo. There's video of him in in in, in the ring with American wrestlers, but there's there's a lot. Um, there's at least one appearance from Blue Demon on a world class championship wrestling episode, and he's in a battle royal. And he is so much smaller than everybody else in the in the battle royal. I mean, the guy is like because he was a welterweight. Uh, he was a very small wrestler, and I mean, that's where you notice the difference in 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 why somebody maybe didn't get that big push, like like they like as far as being for an American promoter. I mean, as far as working for lucha shows, these guys were huge straws at, at, on on lucha independent shows in the United States, big stars. But you know, if you're gonna like take them into the American wrestling promotions. Uh, they're they're going to be either they're they're even sm- too small to be junior heavyweights in some places. Uh, but Medico Asesino fit the this you know because of his size, he was able to work well as far as a, as being a heavyweight. Uh, plus, he had a style that was like a, being a Rudo really helped him because he he was more, a far more aggressive style of wrestler. Now, when you hear El Medico Asesino, do you immediately think no brainer Hall of Famer? I think so. Yeah. 100%. Yes, absolutely. No doubt. Like I said, when, when I saw his name on the ballot, it was like, wait, he's not already in there. You know, I had to double check because I heard so many stories, read so much about him, you know, arena magazine, boxy Lucha, when they have the sections on the old timers, you know, or the legends, the Landas, you know, Medico Asesino gets featured quite often and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I was kind of surprised. And then uh, Boxy Lucha has their own Hall of Fame that they started back in the 80s, I believe. And Medico Asesino got put in that one in 1989. So to me, it absolutely was a no-brainer. Yeah, it is interesting that he hadn't been on the ballot, but to the credit of the voters, he was on the ballot and he immediately got in. I guess we can call him a first ballot Hall of Famer. It took a long time, but once he got on the ballot, he immediately got in. Carlos Lagarde, there's a different story there. He's been on the ballot for a number of years, and he's one of those names, and we've talked about it in other segments in the past. He's one of those names that it's surprising he hasn't received more support, and it's surprising he's not in. He finally gets in. What did you think when you heard the news, Fredo? 
that one surprised me that he didn't get in. Like I, I was surprised um, Dave didn't have him in that initial um, group that he added into the Hall of Fame when he first started this. Uh, but yeah, I, I was, and I think I was part of me was a little bit surprised that he actually got in this time, just because he's been on there for so many years that you kind of figured, okay, he's probably never going to get in, and somebody's going to have to write Dave a, a long, you know, his a research paper on why Karloff Lagarde should be in the Hall of Fame. And that's how he would get in. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm glad that he made it much. Like, and to be like, I was I think even the fact that he was I think that's also what I kind of thought with Medico Asesino was I've seen Carlos Lagarde, Huracan Ramirez, so many of these guys who've been on there for so many years. I figured Medico Asesino was just going to fall into that line of, you know, oh, OK, he's going to be you know, he's going to be there for a while. So, uh, you know, I, I, I would be surprised if he gets in. Then I find out that he's like one of the first guys that like a, a first ballot hall of famer, which surprised me, but um, Lagarde, I think should have been in it years ago. Um, I think the, the thing with Lagarde is that he kind of gets overshadowed by Rene Guajardo, his tag team partner and longtime friend uh, that I think that might've hurt him a little bit, but uh, to be fair, I, I don't know how that would even be justified just because he was, like I said, he was just a, a big, uh, a big star as far as uh, the welterweight division. They're, they're, Back when championship belts meant something, this guy was such a huge star at that point in time that uh, I think I think he he's somebody that I, I'm surprised because I I think there was a point where a lot of people were wondering maybe you know maybe Lagarde has to go in as a tag team with Guajardo because they're probably one of the greatest tag teams of all time in Mexico, uh, top two or three tag teams of all time. So um, I I'm glad he went in on his own just because he merits it. I mean there's there's no doubt that he he deserves to be in there because. Of what he did and you know uh, if you look at what it was like in the 1960s uh if it wasn't guajardo early 60s if it wasn't guajardo it was lagarde who were considered the best wrestlers in mexico as far as like the wrestler of the year they constantly were the two guys that would went back and forth you know and they were tag team i mean they were tag team partners that people viewed them at that level um unfortunately with lagarde there's not a lot there's no there's no footage of him uh we have some of Guajardo. I mean, there's a Guajardo Solitario match from World Class from like 1982 that is that where you get to see what Guajardo was like. And he was an excellent wrestler even at, at that age. I mean, this is like, you know, 10, 15 years after his, uh, you know, past his prime and he was still a very good wrestler. Uh, whereas with Lagarde and, and even Guajardo still at that point in time, he was still a, a, a fixture. And, you know, when he wasn't uh, promoting, he was, he was, uh, he was, uh, he was, he would rust make an appearance on UWA shows. So he was still somebody that was around, whereas Lagarde was kind of like his career was kind of starting to dwindle down when UWA was kind of becoming a big thing. So, so he, he, there isn't as much of him later in his career. So unfortunately, there's no footage of his, him. But like, if you just go back and look at the re, you do look at the results and what he did in, in in EMLL in the in the in the sixties and the seventies, I mean, the guy definitely is somebody that should have been a, years ago in the Hall of Fame. I'm sorry. I, I'm glad that he made it this time. And you got to remember too, at a time where Santo was protected, and yeah. he was yeah. their their middleweight champion, I believe. Uh, Lagarde was, um, I believe, welterweight champion, and they had a match, and uh, Lagarde beat, beat him clean and uh, held the other title uh, as well. So I mean, he was like a multiple champion coming off a big win against El Santo. I mean. <laughs> The, the, just the thought of you know Santo at, at pretty much the height of his career in, in the early '60s losing a, a clean match 
at a time like that, it's just especially that's a big reason why I was such a huge advocate for Ligardi for all these years, too, was the length of the titles that he held, uh, the quality of the matches that he was having that I've, I've read about, you know, over, uh, over, over the years. And, and he held multiple titles at once for multiple divisions. So, and you know, just, yeah, he was a no brainer to me. So I'm, I'm really glad now we can kind of concentrate on, you know, guys from the seventies uh, and eighties instead of, you know, voting for fifties and sixties for a change. Well, on that topic, when I last voted in this category, I voted for Los Brazos and I think they're no brainer hall of famers. They should be in right away. They haven't gotten in. They're still on the ballot. Roy, let me go to you first. Do you think they're going to finally get in now that we're seeing a lot of people come off the ballot because they're actually getting in? Who was the last big star that left the ballot but didn't get in? San Caris? I believe so. That that may have been it. Um, I'll be really shocked if the Brazos get in. I'm going to say too many people just consider them, uh, too many of the voters, even the ones, the historians, may look at the Brazos and think of the comedy stuff that they do and not um, really pay attention. And not the to 1980s. The, not the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not the 1980s, not the the mask matches, not the, the UWA uh, sellouts, not the – Everywhere they went, they were a huge draw. And yeah, unfortunately, their comedy stuff to the to the uh, average voter here, I believe, is is going to hold them back. And if they get in, um, I'll be surprised just because uh, if it's taken this long, I don't I really don't think they'll get in. I really think the comedy stuff is going to hold them back. What do you think, Fredo? I I think weren't they like the the top? pick for active wrestlers i think those wrestlers were the top pick for active wrestlers if i remember uh, but i kind of think they i think there's i'm kind of 50 50 also like i think they might get in just because i i do think there's there's so much more to them as far as what you could find as um it's not as obviously you're not going to get any of the 80s uwa stuff when they were really at their peak but let me, um, let me just jump in real quick they were the number one pick amongst retired wrestlers actually yeah and that surprised me too. I mean, retired wrestlers, I don't think like I, and I would assume the majority of retired wrestlers voting are, you know, American wrestlers. I wouldn't think there's a lot of people from Mexico or Japan. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask Dave about this, but um, if it's American wrestlers, retired wrestlers, especially, I, I'm surprised that they would actually have um, Los Brazos as their top pick. I would be more, I would be less surprised that they were top, with active wrestlers, just because active wrestlers to me means that they're younger, they're still around. They they grew up during the you know the era that we were a part of the tape trading, uh, watching a lot of videos. So you know they might have you know stumbled into a couple of Brazos matches, became fans, and started watching those Brazos. Whereas retired wrestlers, I don't really see the you know you know assuming these are guys that you know their their heyday was you know the nineties, eighties, nineties, seventies, eighties, nineties. I don't really see them kind of being guys that were really into like watching Los Brazos at that point in time. So um, that kind of surprised me, but I kind of, I kind of think that they might get in just because there's there, the, 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 the list for Lucha kind of like uh, it kind of emptied out a lot with, you know, Carl off the guard, you know, Ultima girl, LA Clark and all these guys that are kind of gone off. Um, I think I, I, I kind of think they might get in. I, I do think they might get in just because there's also a lot of people from Japan that 
that um, probably remember their work in um, in the in Hamada's UWF, and they were really good in that in that promotion as well. So, uh, you know, the comedy stuff. Uh, you know, I think if you look at their comedy, their comedy isn't as um, you know we've changed we've changed the complete direction of what comedy wrestling is. Uh, comedy wrestling now is very much like the norm now in wrestling. Uh, it's not. It's I don't even know if we actually like enjoy comedy wrestling now, whereas. In the past, the comedy wrestling that they did was really good. Um, you know, the whole, you know, the the Three Stooges stuff that they would do, you know, the 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 re, the, the crowd cheering the, the technicals and then refusing and deciding to leave and getting the crowd to cheer them back into the ring, um, stuff like that. I mean, that stuff is still entertaining to me. Um, it's not as um, it's not as an overblown type of comedy that that you kind of see nowadays where it's like a little bit, you know, a little bit more. Uh, I don't know. It's, it doesn't come across well in, in, in a match like it used to back then. Well, let's talk about one of the big controversies this year, which was Kenny Omega. And I think one of the things that makes it so controversial is that he's in the middle of his career. We still don't know how things are going to work out in America for AEW. He's in the midst of his career. There have been other guys, Shinsuke Nakamura, AJ Styles, different people in the last several years who got in while they were still active. And there was still a lot that they were going to do during their career. So it can go a lot of different ways. But Kenny Omega's in, in the middle of his career, probably mostly based on the quality of his matches to the people who enjoy his matches. So let me ask you both, and I'll start with you, Fredo. What do you think about Kenny Omega going in? And to this topic of someone going in in the middle of their career, on the list of Mexico candidates is Caristico, the former Mystico. Do you think if he was on the ballot in 2010, people would see him differently than they do right now? Oh, definitely. I mean, and and it's it's like I think this is the prime example of a, of a wrestler that uh, when we talk about either they're going in too soon or going in too late. Um, and you see that you mentioned Nakamura now with Kenny Omega and with Caristico. I mean, Caristico as Mystico probably. You know, before he went to WWE and had that horrible Sin Cara period of his career um, that I think a lot of us wish we could forget. Um, unfortunately, we can't, and this is why he's not in the in the getting a lot of uh, mention as far as being a Hall of Famer. Uh, I just I think it's um, it, it's difficult, but at the same time, like to me, like with Caristico, uh, I I guess you could I I guess it's similar to with Kenny Omega. I think. To me, I don't think I would have voted for Caristico um, when when he was going during that time period because I probably would have made the same argument that people would have made with Kenny Omega or any or, or Nakamura or anybody else that comes in who gets into the Hall of Fame early is that you don't vote for I don't vote for somebody if I still think they have more years in their career as far as you know prime years um, I would not vote for them so I probably wouldn't I probably would have been the, one of those people that wouldn't have voted for Mystico back then I probably would have said you know come on this guy still has a few more years, he's going to go to, well, you know, I probably would have already known because I knew what WWE was going to do to him. Um, so I probably would have been like, don't go to WWE. It's going to ruin your career. Um, and it turned out to be true. It, it didn't, it didn't work for him, um, as far as that moment. Uh, but it's like he's been able to recover from it. And now he gets nothing. I, I would assume he's probably never going to, I wouldn't say he never will get in, but it's going to be harder for him to get in just because it's, it, people can't look past that whole, WWE period like it's like they remember the mystical boom and then they kind of just forget they they kind of just like oh that was it he didn't do anything else beyond that um but if there's so many guys 
that that are on the ballot that if you just look at five or six years that they probably do belong and we even like like Kerry Von Eric, John Fair Dog, Sergeant Slaughter, so many guys that we could go back and talk about. They had, you know, six, seven years, successful years. And he did that. I mean he did that. He probably belongs. And I don't think people are gonna are just gonna overlook him because, you know, he that happened to him like the whole WWE period. With with so with Kenny, I mean uh, I, I, he still has so much more he could do with, with AEW. And I, I think the other difference is I don't think he's going to have that issue that Caristico is having just because uh, it was, I think there's a little bit of a, for whatever reason, I think it's harder for people with, as far as people in Mexico to like, that are voting for that to overlook that. Whereas with Kenny Omega, he's going to be either listed in Japan or the United States. So I think people are always going to like look at him a little differently. Like you, I, I kind of think like you could fail in one promotion and then, you know, relive your career somewhere else and people will overlook that. Whereas with Caristico, I think it's kind of like, I don't know. I think, and it's not, I'm not just saying that because, you know, it's, it's a bias toward him because there's a lot of people who vote for Lucha. There are big Lucha fans that are still kind of like hard against Caristico as far as, you know, still being able to look past that. Um, I just think it's hard for them to look past that, uh, with, with him. So. I think with Kenny Omega, the same thing's going to, it would have happened with him as well, but, um, I don't know. I think, I think, I think it's, there's, there's so, it's very, it's a different situation entirely. Uh, I think the, the, I think if you, to me, like he, if you're, if you're voting for him, you're voting for him for those matches that he had, you know, the, the, the matches that went beyond five stars, you know, so however many there were, that's already a lot more than anybody else. I don't think you. I don't think if you look back at Caristico or some of these other guys' careers, you don't really hear a lot about them as far as star ratings and stuff like that. Like, there's not this over. Uh, no, you, you hear know, about the houses they drew. Yes, yes, you hear about houses and stuff, and it's like it's like for whatever reason, I think there's a a, a certain group of voters that kind of like for whatever reason they skip that, and it's like like oh yeah, but Kenny Omega had eighteen six star or higher matches or something like that and it's like to them that's far greater than oh you know caristico had this you know incredible run of um headlining you know sellouts in arena mexico or he was a huge draw in like you know over a seven day period he you know had sellouts in all these different arenas but you know for for whatever reason they can't grasp that and um i just I, it's very difficult for, but as far as like voting for somebody that's still active I just find it very difficult to vote for them just because, and, I, and like I said, I think that would have hurt. I think that's probably something that would have hurt um, Caristico either way, just because I, 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 you know, even him, like he's still very much, uh, I think he's probably in his early forties. And if you look at luchadors, uh, they're still very active into their like late fifties, early sixties. So uh, he could have a, another boom in him in you know, like, in his fifties, just because, you know, look at Nero Casas, the guy's still going at, at 60 and, and he's still a very impressive wrestler. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that, I think, I think that's the hard part for me. It's like, I can't, I can't vote for anybody who's really, um, active, um, other than Caristico, just because, you know, it, to me, it just makes no sense that he had that period in, in his career where it, it, it made so much sense to, that he belonged. And for whatever reason, people just keep overlooking that because, you know, they're so focused on how bad he was in WWE. And I think that's what, that's what it's holding him back. With Kenny Omega, I, 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 um, 
I don't know. I think that's that's what people kind of like. I know. I think Dave Meltzer doesn't want to give himself credit that the credit for being uh, his opinion. You know, you know, kind of turns into a little bit of a bias amongst voters because they kind of like they kind of like look at what he writes and what he does and you know what what he views as as being great. Uh, kind of helps that wrestler kind of get a little bit more recognition. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because I'll, I'll hear Mel Dave talk about, um, you know, some of the luchadors that he thought were no brainers to get in. And I don't remember him ever like really going out of his way to do something like, you know, Carlo Lagarde was a no brainer. Where's the, where's the, you know, there wasn't as much about him as, you know, and, you know, maybe obviously he didn't have the time to do it, but you no, know, there, there wasn't as much for, um, you know, there, there, the, the Kenny Omega's kind of benefited from the fact that he's getting so much of the, you know, so much of Dave watching a lot of New Japan Pro Wrestling and now obviously watching AEW. So he's going to get a little bit more of an opportunity to get, um, you know, more voters voting for. Yeah. And I think Caristico, that original boom period, I think it'll only look more and more impressive as the years go by, as the yeah. business changes. So hopefully that's something that boosts his candidacy. But Roy, let me turn it over to you. What are your thoughts on Kenny Omega going in first ballot this year in the middle of his career? And also, since we were just talking about the original Mystico, Caristico, what are your thoughts on him? Um, I did not vote for Omega for pretty much a lot of the same reasons as both of you guys, as he's still having a career. And one thing, too, is voting for him in a section like Japan, where for all intensive purposes, his career in Japan may be done unless AEW and New Japan start coming up with some kind of deal. I mean, I got back into New Japan in 2015. Omega was the a year or two later the, the IC champ, and then uh, heavyweight champ a, a year later had the program with Jericho. But that'll happen in a two- to three-year period That like where he was uh, a huge focus of the top of the card. You got the Caristico where ever since AAA split off and took, you know, the majority of the roster with them, CMLL stopped doing multiple houses a week, unless it was a big mask or hair match or uh, uh, something apuesta. Uh, they weren't drawing the constant sellouts like they were during the times with uh, Vampiro from 1992. Caristico comes along and all of a sudden again, they got, uh, you know, the genie in the bottle, they got that, that flash in the pan. And I mean, it lasted for quite some time and may have continued to go if he didn't take off to WWE. And maybe it's just me, but I'll never hold that WWE run against him. You know, the guy busts his ass, um, for X amount of years for a promotion, he's offered X amount more money to wrestle for another one, not be the focus. You know, the guy's got a, a family. He's got a, a financial future he needs to take care of. It's so like a, a lot of the voters that want to rip on any of the guys that went to WCW uh, for their time there when they were losing, you know, squash matches to Goldberg. And it's like, I'll never hold that against them because they were probably making 10 times more in WCW than they were wrestling down, down in Mexico, if not more. 
So, you know, you just, you got, you got to think with your head on stuff like that. And, and Caristico, uh, Sincara Mystico had to do what he felt was right at the time. But for the time that he was in CMLL, he was, he was hot. He was white hot. I remember when, um, they would have tag matches and six man matches and Elijo de Santo would be his partner. And the thing with Mexico is you could always tell who the biggest draw is because they'll be announced in order and Santo would be announced first or second. And then, uh, Mystico would be announced last, which would be like a sign that, you know, he was the, the main focus of the promotion. So, um, to go back to Omega, it's like, for all in all intents and purposes, his career in Japan may be done. It was a short two, three years, and pretty much he got in. And this is not a knock on Omega as a person. I want to make that clear. I, I like the guy. He's a great guy. He's, he's he never had any issues with him whatsoever. But a lot of this just seems like he had, what, those five and a half, six, six and a half star matches more than the drawing power and you know for him he did luckily uh the jericho feud uh brought a lot of eyes onto the company from america that weren't there before but if it wasn't for jericho being a part of that you know a lot of american fans uh wouldn't have been interested i mean jericho is really the huge focus on that and not so much omega but now omega got elevated because of that feud but see elevated he wasn't at that level, and I just feel like him being in the Hall of Fame, um, I felt it was too early, but that's my own personal opinion. That's it. You brought up an interesting issue, the idea that Kenny Omega was on the list of Japanese candidates because the part of his career that we're really judging him on is his career in New Japan. It's not even his career for DDT before that. It's primarily New Japan, and like you just said, Roy, and I agree with you 100%, it's really a few year period, you know, three years, four years, whatever it may be. It was really, you know, after AJ Styles left up until when Kenny left. And we talked to Fumi Saito about that in another segment. He brings up a lot of interesting points about the package deal that is New Japan. That is the top star picture in New Japan. But to the idea that he's on the list of candidates from Japan, it made me think of this. And Fredo, let me go to you first. Added to the ballot next year is Dory Dixon. And I'm going to assume that he might be on the list of Mexico candidates instead of historical United States candidates. What are your thoughts on Dory Dixon as a Hall of Famer? I think he probably is somebody that's going to get a lot just because I, I do think, I think the interesting thing is that like the more you like do research on him, he had a long career in the United States also. So um, that's kind of a, I don't know if he would get in in the U.S., but I think in Mexico he probably will just because he's somebody that was still a fixture in Mexico. He decided to stay and live there. So uh, he, he um, and he's very well, you know, known in Mexico. You know, there's a lot of fans who still see him like when, when he was still like past his career, retired and retired. Um, he was still somebody that people would still see and still knew who he was. Uh, but he was somebody who was a, a pretty big star in, in, in his in, in his um during the the 60s and 70s, really one of the more popular wrestlers. Uh, I think he's somebody that's going to get a lot of... Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if he's some, somebody that the Dave gets surprised to see that it might be a first ballot uh, Hall of Famer. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Wow, interesting. What do you think, Roy? I'll be voting for him. Um, everything I've read upon him, 
even the way that he's spoken upon nowadays. I mean, he did appearances down at uh, Solar Store and Super Astro Store, and he had amazing lines. You know, people bringing their their kids and their grandkids, you know, to meet the the great you know Dory Dixon. And I mean, he's he's loved by the people down there. As as Fredo said, he finished his career in Mexico. He still lives there nowadays. I believe he's a. Uh, I, I, is he a Mormon missionary? I, I believe like that. That's like one of his roles down there, or something, or if not Mormon, like a, a similar religion. But he's really adopted Mexico as his home, and he, he was always on the top of the cards on like check. Old or El Torreo, Arena Mexico cards, and you'll always see Dory Dixon's name like on the top or close to the top on every single one of those. And he was he was a draw. Uh, he I don't believe he ever uh, turned Rudo. I believe maybe Fredo, Fredo could uh, 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 check on that, but I just believe he was always loved. He was taken as the Mexicans, like similar to Destroyer in Japan. There was that one point where he was considered one of them, or like the Funks, where like Japan adopted them as one of them, and that's what Mexico did to Dory Dixon. And uh, he's, I've, I've never heard nothing but great things about him in and out of the ring. But if we're talking about in the ring, I I will be voting for him for sure. One of the interesting names on the ballot that got in this year was Jun Akiyama. Fredo, you voted for him. What were your thoughts about voting for him, and what did you think about him getting in? Well, I thought it was great that Jun Akiyama got in. Um, I, the reason I voted for him really was that, I mean, he's still been one of the great wrestlers in, in Japan for so many years. And I kind of think he's one of the guys who connects you know, the, 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 the all Japan pro wrestling era that we all remember from the nineties to the current era. So you kind of like, there's, there's a little bit of a, you know, it kind of brings back a little bit more of a, I guess it's a little bit more nostalgic to see him uh, kind of go up against some of the newer stars or some of the guys who kind of are, are the, the new generation of wrestlers from, from Japan. So uh, I think that's one of the reasons I uh, also, I mean, he's been a fixture in Japanese wrestling for so long. Uh, He's kind of becoming a, a guy, you know, I don't think you see that as much in, in Japan as we do in uh, in Mexico, where guys who are still still around for such an extended amount of time, you know, as far as being a, a, a main event or a, a, a top star, in a, and, and, you know, not just in their promotion, but when they work other places, they're still a huge, a huge deal. Um, I think that's the reason I kind of like, I was really glad that he made it. And one of the reasons I voted for him, usually I vote for I think the, the the previous year I only voted for Akira Tower, but to be fair, on my behalf is that you know there was a huge you know amount of luchadors that had not been voted in um, from the previous year, and I think as I think as we see more and more of a you know the lucha section kind of start uh, being more looking like what it looks like in the other categories, I think there's going to be a few maybe even some more fans that are kind of not just you know following lucha that they might actually start voting for other people although to be fair i think there's a lot of people who vote you know for a variety of reasons but uh as far as what they're going to vote for but uh to me that's you know akiyama was to me like somebody that i kind of viewed as a no-brainer uh just because like i said he's he to me he's in that you know in that list of the guys from you know all japan pro wrestling if you're going to vote for somebody you're going to you know there's misawa kawada kobashi taue and then akiyama's the other one and i think he he's 
he, I was glad he made it. I hope Tawi at some point makes it in. Uh, I will keep my whole, I will keep voting for him until he finally makes it in. Um, I, I hope Fujiwara finally makes it in. Yes, he's another guy that I think. Um, I think that's. I think I'm more familiar with ta- the J- all Japan guys. Um, New Japan, obviously in the '90s, but I think Fujiwara is somebody that kind of was a little bit more, you know, the '80s, and then he did more of the, you know, the 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 style that he's more familiar, you know, that people are more familiar with him. Uh, I think down the road, you know, as I watch more stuff or rewatch, I mean, even that, I think there's a lot of us who kind of watched. Because a lot of us got into tape trading and we watched a lot of wrestling, but at the same time, um, let's be honest, we weren't watching a lot of those tapes. We were watching a lot of the, you know, we would skip through it and watch who we thought were the, you know, who we wanted to watch, uh, who we considered stars at the time, or even like the the style that we liked. And then we would kind of skip a lot of the stuff that, you know, that maybe we weren't really that familiar with. But as you get older, you kind of start, you know, you have a little more time or you maybe want to watch something that you kind of weren't, maybe want to give a second chance to watching and guess what you end up finding a lot of guys that you you end up realizing that were definitely far more deserving and Fujiwara I mean not you know the whole I think the stuff that I'm more familiar with him is from the you know when they did the whole New Japan UWF UWF feud that's more what I'm more familiar with him as far as what I with him uh so as as I start watching more stuff I'm sure there's going to be a lot of guys that are going to be you know no, are are going to be far more deserving in my eyes because you know, like I said, I constantly watch a lot of the older stuff um, because you know, I think I I kind of a lot of the current wrestling just doesn't resonate with me. It's not stuff that I really enjoy watching, um, other than lucha libre. Uh, so it, I, instead of like instead of me complaining about it, I mean, I'd rather just watch a lot of the older stuff. And you know, you discover a lot of like you rediscover you rediscover a lot of wrestlers that maybe you didn't um, you kind of thought were. You know, like to me, like one of those examples of the Rock and Roll Express, I was always a big Ricky Morton fan, but I would always kind of underrate or undervalue uh, Robert Gibson. But now that I started watching a lot of Memphis wrestling, I watch a lot of stuff. I started to see the, you know, you know, hey, Robert Gibson was just as good as Ricky Morton and, or, you know, maybe not that that level, but he really deserves to some, you know, he deserves some credit for the Rock and Roll Express. It isn't just Ricky Morton, you know, selling that was so awesome. Uh, there's more to it, and I think that's something that you start um, as you as you watch more of you rewatch a lot of stuff. You kind of start appreciating um, other wrestlers that you maybe didn't give a chance to the first time around. And one thing I want to bring up about Fujiwara is similar to Minoru Suzuki later. That's probably where he patterned it from. Was uh, Fujiwara adapted with the times? Like once pro wrestling Fujiwara Gumi ended, Fujiwara was doing tag matches in Mishinoku Pro with with great Sasuke. He was over in uh, doing deathmatch stuff with Onita. Um, I mean, he just he wrestled for multiple promotions. I believe there may have been stuff he did with uh, Shinobu Kandori, you know. So, I mean, he just adapted with the times and and, uh, brought himself to many promotions and, and did a lot of different stuff. Because uh, he knew, you know, fans would want to see him all over. He just didn't stick with one promotion or one style in, in, in the mid-90s. So that's one thing I highly respect about. And it's similar to what, like, Minoru Suzuki did years later with the, you know, the comedy stuff with Kikataro and uh, all that. You know, yeah. while he was a serious wrestler, he just showed a different side of himself. So, you know, I, I believe Fujiwara, by doing that, just kept his legacy going longer than – um, you know, it added another five, 10 years to his legacy there. So I just, I'm a huge advocate for Fujiwara and, uh, 
I hope that, you know, someone gets her ballot next year. They'll really research him and, and see why he deserves to be there. He may not have ever won any big titles and, you know, he may not have headlined a lot of stuff, but trust me, he, he was a, a focus and um, a pioneer in a lot of ways. Well, guys, as we begin to wrap things up, one final question for both of you. And Roy, I'll start with you. What are you looking forward to next year? Are there people that you think right now you know who you're going to put on your ballot? And also, are there any ways you see that you could optimize the process, the process of voting for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Are there any changes you'd like to see made going forward? Um, I do like Dave's style as far as similar to the Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, you need a certain percentage from a certain uh, category of voters. I believe that is one great thing that, you know, makes the Observer Hall of Fame stand out as compared to uh, a lot of the other ones out there that, that exist where it's a, a voting crew of one to five people. Um, as far as a, any changes, uh, I, nothing really jumps out at me. I mean, if I hear of some, I'd, I'd be opening to hearing about them and stuff like that. But I believe that what he has right now is, is, is a pretty good format. Uh, but I do believe that if somebody with knowledge of a certain territory or something like that um, does the research and discovers that somebody should be on there, uh, similar to what you did for, for Wild Bull Curry um, and what Fredo, uh, not Fredo, uh, Vandal did for uh, Cardigan, you know, just more, more of that, getting more eyes on, because even though someone like uh, Wild Bull may not have been put in the Hall of Fame, the thing is that his name has become more of a legacy now because of the research that you did and his name being on that ballot. So it, it goes above beyond just being in the Hall of Fame. The fact that his name is being circulated and talked about and stuff like that. Um, I bought I bought the book from uh, his son because I wanted to know more about his career. So um, yeah, just more more historical uh, names brought in that were kind of missed out would be my biggest thing. Fredo, same question. Open up to you. What do you think going into next year, the class of twenty twenty one? Anything that you think is interesting about that ballot? Obviously, Okada is going to be one of the big names on there and. Although I think he at this point is on a clear-cut Hall of Fame trajectory, I probably will think about him the same way I think about some other guys, where he is still young and in the middle of his career, although you could argue he possibly has done enough already to be a Hall of Famer. But what do you think going into next year's Hall of Fame? And are there any ways you see that the Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, should be optimized or changed, anything to help historical candidates? What are your closing thoughts? Well, I think. Thing I'm most looking forward to is the just how much how different the lucha section is going to look like just just because we've seen so many guys you know that were kind of stuck in there for so many years that it's kind of like it's opened up the 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 you know it's kind of like there's starting to I mean I think he mentioned um, Octagon La, La Parca AAA and Psycho Clown were being going to be considered for the for uh, going to be added to the ballot which you know I don't think any of those three are going to get votes and um although you can make an argument for a lot of different wrestlers as to why they you know they deserve to be considered but i i don't know if that's going to be i think we're getting to the point where we're finally starting to clear up a little bit of that um i really would like to see a little bit 
like like Roy said, I do think there should be more of a, a, a of an attempt to get some of the guys that are we're missing as far as historical uh, from the past. I think right now the in, in Mexico, I think we're still missing Los Espantos, the the brothers, uh, Los Espantos, the the and really just even if you just go with one, that's that's already like the 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 one. I think they're the the last group from that era that we're really missing. Um, I think I'm not sure Charo Guayo is in in there as well. Uh, if he doesn't get in, if he's not in. I'm pretty sure uh, Kurt Brown will get him in at some point because uh, he's written and researched a lot about him. Uh, so uh, there's there's that as far as what they could do to optimize or change. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we we bring this up every so often. I hear other people talk about it. Um, I don't know. I, I think they're they're as as we get and it's not so much that we're getting um younger fan like younger voters it's more of like we're getting newer I, I guess you could call them newer um as far as new to um they're not really as familiar with the history of professional wrestling so maybe they're starting to we're we're probably going to start seeing a skew more towards the you know like the newer guys like we're probably going to see a lot of the, the 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 you know obviously we've seen omega get in okada's probably i i think okada's probably going to be a, a, a guy who's probably going to whoever He's probably going to go get in on a first ballot. Um, Absolutely. To me, yeah. I mean that. I I think the fact that Omega got in just tells me Okada is definitely going to get in, and he's probably done even more as far as uh, you know what he's done outside. Like because he he even worked in Mexico a few times, um, and he was pretty awesome there. Uh, but I I don't know. I don't really know what else you could do as far as what other than really like having people talk about historical you know characters that maybe or wrestlers that weren't that that maybe should get some more consideration i mean i think he has the he has the platform to do that you know have somebody talk about what don owen did and as far as you know why he should be considered you know maybe that's something that might actually open up a little bit more of a of a discussion for for maybe they won't vote for him but maybe there's going to be people that are going to listen to that you know to that podcast or maybe if you if there's something written about them Maybe there's going to be people that are going to be like, you know, maybe I should look up more into him. Um, I think the one area that I think is kind of like still very, very newish to a lot of us is the British wrestling scene. And I kind of think that's something that I kind of want to see a little bit more um, discussed as far as um, who belongs from that er from that uh, category, from that territory, just because um, I think there's there, you know, you yeah, you know, you could have people talk about how you know, Big Daddy belongs or, or, but, you know, there's a lot of us who don't really know who these guys were, much like people who maybe aren't familiar with Lucha Libre, but you have to have a lot of um, more discussion, more why they should get in and why, why, why they belong, why they're Hall of Fame worthy. And uh, I think there should be a little bit more discussion. I mean, there, there, there's so many podcasts uh, that I think, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt like to have something, you know, not just after or, or that discussing who you voted for, but maybe something before that. That you know, a show that maybe gives a little bit more insight into those, um, into who some of those um, people in the ballot in the ballot are, you know, like, you know, because there's only a lot of people don't really know who they are, and you know, who knows, you know, maybe it's not us, but maybe the people that listen to it down the road become people that become the historians or the reporters or the future wrestlers, and they end up getting a ballot down the road, and maybe they end up, you know, opening up more of an opportunity for some of those guys to get in. I think that's something that I, I would like to see more discussion about it more than anything else.
We continue our look at the 2020 class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame with another all-star panel here. And before we get going with anything, let's introduce our competitors. Making his debut on the Hall of Fame special, a man who has done a lot of different things, from writing for WWE Magazine to being a part of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, including the co-host of the PWI podcast. And very excitingly, he is working now on the first ever biography of The Sheik. I'm very happy to have him on the show. Brian Solomon. Brian, thanks for being here. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Brian. I, I've been listening to the show for a long time, and uh, I enjoy it very, very much, and I'm glad to be a part of this. Also on the line is a serious historian, a serious collector. If he outbids me for one more thing on eBay, I think there may be a murder. This oh. is also the co-host of the Charting the Territories podcast right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. He's your friend and mine, John Boucher. John, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Obviously, a huge, huge fan of, of the show, specifically these Hall of Fame shows. I, I love listening to them, and I'm sorry for outbidding you. I can, can <laughs> work something out. We'll talk about on. something later on off air. Okay, absolutely. And our returning champion, a man who people literally demand appear on the show each and every year. He is one of wrestling's most prolific tweeters and the Baron of Blackpool himself. Alan Blackstock. Alan, thanks for being back on the show. Thank you for having me as always, Brian. The Baron of Blackpool, that's certainly a uh, a name I want to live by now, definitely. I want to walk down the street and <laughs> demand everyone calls it me. But no, I want to be known as Seething Alan Cheapshot. Seething, and I'll get to why as we discuss the uh, the balance. But uh, I'm hot, Brian. I'm ready to go, and I'm excited to be here. Well, I can't do anything but start with you now based on that. Alan? Let's talk about who was on your ballot this year. What did you send into Dave? Who did you vote for for the Hall of Fame this year? Well, I'll just start off by saying that, you know, when I, when I do the ballot, I'm, I'm always feeling privileged. It's nice to be considered someone who's got an opinion that Dave values to a degree or, you know, people have talked him around over the years. I don't know which one it is, but here we are. I think it's my fourth or fifth year voting now. And it's some of the candidates I've gone for. It's 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 some of your usual suspects, um, some that you've championed as well. So we'll just uh, skip through them, Brian. But the first one, and I think it was you originally that really got me to look at his career, and that's Wild Bull Curry. Um, someone that was longevity was it was a draw for a long long time i think his heyday was texas was boston i think it was his uh big two stomping grounds but he was a name and he was actually not just a gimmick he was an actual good brawler um for years and years and years and he's just someone that you know looks like a pro wrestler someone that stood out someone that is memorable even to this day and i think he's someone that sums up someone from that 50s and 60s era not your straight-laced nwa champion types someone's a touring attraction someone that you know got people talking in the just for his fantastic eyebrows and for that alone he should be in an eyebrow hall of fame from the uh with the guy what's he called who uh, is in Shit's creek um i was Eugene um, levy that's him, him those two they're the eyebrow kings so uh <laughs> yeah wild bull curry is up there so um always someone that i'll vote for and uh, thanks for you for turning on to his career and the, the second one um someone that i'm disappointed that his vote tally's uh, fallen this year brian and that's uh sputnik monroe you've got some historians that will say oh civil rights movements what's that got to do with a hall of fame well it's bigger than a hall of fame to me i think he did something meaningful he did something actually has an effect on people uh, more so than a pro wrestling hall of fame and i think he he, he was someone that 
really changed things in Memphis. If you, if, if people, people should know the story now anyway. Well, he, he, he started segregation or he, he, he allowed segregation or people to come together at the arenas, especially in Memphis and then sit, sit aside one another. And I think, you know, that, that's a huge thing for someone um, to say that they were that, that influential that did that. And lastly, but no means leastly is Enrique Torres. Um, someone that was a champion for years and years, someone that was a draw for years and years, someone that I think is, is, it should be in already. Uh, he was either presented as a you know your big world champion for large portions of your career, or he was this big draw. Um, and the promoters went to him time and time again. Um, I don't know how good he was in ring. I don't think the footage is there, but without that, I'm still confident that he should be in that Hall of Fame. So they're my historical category, guys. But I'll skip through the rest because I give everyone else a chance to speak, Brian. So other candidates, US and Canada, I went with Junkyard Dog, um, Vic Martel, Sergeant Slaughter, Kerry Von Erich. Uh, Japan was Akira Tawe. Uh, I abstained from Mexico. I generally think out of all the categories, I wouldn't do it justice. Um, I think I'd be going along with the crowd, the people that shout the loudest, um, I might have voted for those types. So I thought that's unfair. I'm not doing it justice, so I abstained. Um, I'm from Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands and Africa category. No shock, obviously, Big Daddy. And second would be Jackie Palo, um, who I think actually might 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 be in or should be in before Big Daddy. Um, I know not really said that before. I've thought more and more about it now. And who should I be backing in the future? Is Big Daddy's day in the sunshine, in the, in the limelight going? Is people losing interest I think there's an argument there we might get to that in a bit I think Jackie Palo might be my uh, European candidate and the champion moving forward and then finally my non-wrestlers were Dave Brown Jim Crocker Jr Morris Siegel Stanley Weston and Don Owen it's a lot to discuss there John who did you vote for this year I voted for this is my first year of voting um, and I had a relatively short for, for what I would prefer uh, a short amount of time uh, to get my vote together. So I, I just voted basically uh, in the historical category, a couple of, of modern guys and the non-wrestlers category. Um, again, Wild Bull Curry was uh, my the, the first guy I voted for. I, you know, the, the first back issue of a wrestling magazine that I ever sent away for was the April 1974 issue of Inside Wrestling. Uh, and the cover has a great bloody photo of Dick Murdoch with a chain. Bruno's tossing somebody around. Chief J. Strongbow doing his war dance. And Sheik is getting attacked with a snake. Uh, it's a great cover. Inside the issue, though, there were first time I saw photos of Wild Bull Curry. And I was just absolutely freaking horrified and fascinated by this guy uh, from the photos alone. And there began my 35-year-plus infatuation with Wild Bull Curry. Um, the guy had like a 40-something-year career. I mean, maybe even 45. You can almost say closer to, to 50. Just a, a, and a tremendous draw for two-thirds to three-quarters of that. You know, and you hear all the stories about the riots and all the crazy photos. And just the, the amount of legend that the guy has achieved with so little footage being available makes him even more impressive to me. I, and I, I love the guy, and I like to think I'm voting for him because of his longevity and his drawing power and his influence and not necessarily just the photos and the look, but those, those do help a lot. Um, also voted for cowboy Bob Ellis um, guy had like a 20 year career. And I don't know if it's, uh, is it safe to call him one of the top 25 baby faces in the U S during that run. Maybe I uh, worked everywhere 
on or near the top uh, during the early 60s, one of the most popular guys in the AWA next to Vern, maybe even the number two guy there at points. And just like a laundry list of, of regional titles. And, and to me, he's like the perfect, handsome, gunsmoke-inspired, babyface cowboy. You know, he's, he's the ideal archetype of that gimmick for me, even with even with the hairpiece. I, mean, I think he definitely needs to be in the best wrestler with a hairpiece discussion along with Bruno and Killer, Killer Kowalski. I think Ernie Ladd had this thing he would do with him where he'd chop him in the corner and his hairpiece would go back. And he'd punch him in the gut and the hair piece would come back. I was like, uh, and I, I, he, he's a guy who's definitely, <laughs> definitely hurt that by the footage that's out there from later in his career where he's sort of slowed down a bit and he's kind of uh, plodding and Frankenstein-y cartoonishly over-exaggerated his movements. But I, I think he's a Hall of Famer in my book. Um, Rocky Johnson, I, vo- I voted for him. Uh, just on top everywhere he worked and like being, being a black guy and being on top in so many promotions, especially in the South, something I felt was really important in assessing him as a hall of famer worked everywhere except for, for Vern basically, which is another story. Um, you know, and I was sad to hear of some of the unpleasantness in his personal life. I was not aware of until fairly recently, but I still voted for him because I'm a horrible human being. Uh, Sputnik and Roe voted for Sputnik. Um, and I read somewhere, maybe Twitter, uh, someone was saying that a vote for Sputnik is a just a white guilt or virtue signaling or something like that. And I, I have to disagree with that. I mean, the guy, the legend, incredible. Who the office. hell said that? What a stupid I, take I, that is. I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Uh, Memphis legend, incredible box off with Billy Wicks, et cetera, et cetera. I think mean, Gates that stood until the nineties sometime, um, in the desegregation of the crowds, the cultural significance of that in the late fifties is huge. Uh, it precedes the desegregation in most other sports and the theaters, you know, like it, when the Beatles came five years later into the South, they had to have a clause in their contract. Like artists will not be required to perform before a segregated audience. Uh, and I hear a lot about like, Oh, whether the idea was legitimately his or not, whether he actually believed in this. And I kind of, honestly, this is wrestling. So I kind of think that's immaterial. Even if he was just the face of that movement, he was selected to be the face of that movement. Uh, and he took the ball, ran with it, and was just about as successful as you could have been with it, regardless of whether his, you know, this was ultimately altruistic or selfish in nature. He was successful in his task. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And if it was merely an opportunity to sell tickets, still, Sputnik was the guy who sold those tickets. And a lesser personality may not have been as successful at it. Um you know, as far as in-ring success, like I said, the legend in Memphis, the Billy Wicks rivalry, huge, huge, huge. Not sure what else there is beyond that. So the question of does that desegregation alone, you know, put him in? And for me, I voted yes with my white guilt virtue signaling. Uh, Enrique Torres also <laughs> voted for Enrique Torres. Uh, world champ for years and years and years during the early TV area, wrestling from Hollywood, et cetera. Worked all over the U.S. and Canada, J- Japan, I think, too, 59. Huge draw. Legendary matches with Gorgeous George, Baron Leone, who says. It's a lot of factors that I think work against his candidacy, uh, and unfairly so. Um, like a lot of the older historians, I think, may have only seen him like in the late 60s, or the six, not the late 60s, just in the 60s, near the end of his career. So I'm thinking maybe subconsciously that affects his status, like a like a younger guy only having seen 
uh, you know, Iraqi sympathizer, Sergeant Slaughter, or having seen that first. Um, and for younger historians, there's only a couple of matches that I've seen floating around on YouTube from the 50s. There's one against Ted Christie from L.A. It's a really, really good match. And another one against Pat McGill, also very good. Um, and this really pains me to say it, but I uh, I almost I, I sort of feel that Alberto and Ramon Torres can hurt Enrique's chances. You know, they're a perfectly suitable tag team, but I don't see them at the same level as I see him and maybe people's perception of that tag team, his brothers hurt him. Just a thought. Uh, also to go down the list, Von Brauners and Saul Weingroff, they just check all the boxes for me. Longevity, almost 15 years on top through three or four different configurations, huge draws on top in every NWA territory. I love the idea of the evil German tag team with a Jewish manager um, what hurts them? I think not a lot of footage again. Um, and them not having like a big Northeast run in the WWF. Um, uh, junkyard dog, I voted for junkyard dog. And you've made this argument for years and I agree hundred percent. The argument of maximum impact. Um, great argument to be made in defense of, of JYD from, you know, 79 to 80, 84 or 85. Uh, yeah, he's hurt by what comes later, but he transformed that territory um, without JYD, what Watts is able to do is questionable. There's so many what ifs without Junkyard Dog. And if one considers him to be lacking in the longevity column, I'd argue that those shortcomings are more than made up in the other columns, maximum impact, effect in the territory, as effective wrestling as a whole during those important transformative years and him being the, the pop culture phenomenon he was in, in that area. Uh, voted for Sarge, Sergeant Slaughter. Um, you know, from 79 to 84, 85, he's absolutely a Hall of Fame guy. A after that, um, you know, it's almost like he's the wrestling equivalent of like a Don Mattingly or a Ron Guidry where you have this period, this blast of like incredible work and a little bit of a decline. Uh, but the work that I think was still passable even during those years, promos are always great. Huge draw could work either way. Um, transcends wrestling. Uh, I think Semper Vivi made a point um, once about him, you know, just for a guy to be able to get death threats still in the 1990s. That's, uh, that's something. Uh, Steiner brothers, uh, Rick and Scott Steiner voted for those guys. Um, huge in the U.S., huge in Japan. So very, very dominant. Uh, also, I've always impressed that they were able to sort of survive being, I don't know if misused is the, the correct term, but uh, however they are presented in the WWF, they uh, survived that. And this, this being the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame Awards, if you look at them in the Observer End of Year Awards from 89 to 93, it's crazy. Uh, they're in the top. They're always in the top tag team of the year, top five, uh, number one a few times, I believe. Always in the match of the year. I think it's ninety-one that they have the number one, number three, and number five match of the year. That's right. So this is the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. This is this this is a lock, you know, for these guys. Um, Carrie, I voted for Carrie. It's a complicated vote. Um, I. From 82, 85, 86, uh, you know, a Hall of Famer. Uh, after the injury, it goes downhill. Uh, huge in his prime everywhere he went. 
Um, again, this is the one guy I think maybe having lived through this time where maybe perhaps nostalgia and romanticism came into play when it shouldn't have. Um, I don't know. Um, I, and I, I wonder if Dave will put him, Kevin and David on ultimately on the ballot. Cause I think that's, I, I feel more confident in voting for that than Carrie as himself, but I, 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 I did vote for him here. Um, in the non-wrestlers, I voted for Bobby Bruns, uh, James Melby, Don Owen, uh, Morris Siegel, and uh, the Grand Wizard. If there's any of those guys you, you'd like to talk about, I, I'm happy to. Well, Brian, let's go to you. Who was on your ballot this year? Sure. Um, so I think sometimes, because this is like the, I, I want to say like maybe the third or fourth time that I've gotten a vote too. Um, I don't know. I may be sort of one of Dave's nightmare voters because I, I, I look at his criteria, which I agree with longevity and drawing power and, and you know, work and historical significance. I also think, you know, because this is a, a wrestling hall of fame and it's not like a baseball hall of fame or something like that, where statistics and numbers can be so valuable. I think that there's sort of also an intangible with some of these guys where you, at least in, for, for my vote, it, you just know in your gut. And I know that's not what people like to hear when you're going for jury duty and things like that. But you just know in your gut when someone belongs in the Hall of Fame. And, and some of my voting is dictated by that. So, like, for example, a lot of people have mentioned Sergeant Slaughter uh, or uh, voting for him. And this comes up every year. And I, I voted for him and I vote for him every time because I, I just feel like, you know, he's one of those names the the, the name recognition has got to count for something. I mean, the cultural crossover that he had, the fact that he he became a household name to this day, you could mention his name to people that never even watched wrestling in their life, and they'll know who that is. Not to mention the fact that, you know, of course, he was an incredible draw, and he was a great worker. And you can point to the period in the WWF where he was as hot, if not hotter, at least for a brief moment, even than Hulk Hogan was. And he had his Iron Sheik program that was headlining you know, the house shows that Hogan wasn't at and things like that. So I think that there's just so much to recommend. He's one of those people for me. I feel like how can you have a wrestling hall of fame of any kind that he's not in really? So, so I have to vote for him. He's on, he's on the list for that reason for me. Um, I voted for Haystacks Calhoun. He's another one that I have been sort of trying to use my, my mental willpower every year to try to will him into the hall of fame. Because, again, I mean, to me, he's sort of like he was Andre the Giant before Andre the Giant. You know, he he, he was that combination of sort of like the, the physical oddity, the touring attraction kind of thing that would come into your town and would increase ticket sales just by being on the card. You know, that kind of thing. He had a lot of longevity. Again, household name of uh, a lot of pop culture cachet. I think somebody like that belongs in your hall of fame so uh, those are two guys that i always vote for um and i'm disappointed every year when they don't make it and i can't what i can't believe is with haystacks calhoun reading that if he doesn't get i guess what if i read it right if he doesn't get 50 percent next year he's going to be dropped from the ballot i just think that's crazy but uh, i'm going to vote for him again um i voted for wild bull curry and sputnik monroe for uh, basically a lot of the, the reasons that have already been mentioned i think those guys belong in there I mean, Curry, especially, he has incredible longevity, um, his working style. I mean, even though there's not a lot of it that survives, we, we know, for example, that he had a big influence on 
popularizing kind of the the brawling style of wrestling the the kind of stuff that would later become you know known as hardcore wrestling he's kind of important to the history of that he's very important to the history of that so i put him on there um i voted for miguel perez and i think if for no other reason than the fact that he was one half of what may have been um the the hottest drawing tag team in in wrestling history with Antonino Rocca and I feel like that that alone if you're talking about historical significance that alone recommends him to be in there um and again I get I may be showing my bias as a northeast guy but I voted for the Valiant brothers I feel like if you're looking at um tag teams of the 70s I mean they especially in the in the WWF I mean they they're your number one team I mean that they are the, the top team they were the longest reigning world tag team champions up until demolition. I mean, uh, th- I, I think they're really, really important to, and not even just the Northeast scene, but a lot, you know, many other places where they worked, but, but even for that alone, I think they would be worthy of going in. Um, I voted for junkyard dog and, um, not for his mainly for his WWF stuff. Um, I feel like he doesn't his, the biggest, uh, criticism on him or one of them is the longevity isn't there. And I understand that. I see that, but I feel like for, for what he did for the years that he had and the hot years that he had, I mean, there was a moment there in the early eighties where you could make a case and, you know, I don't have numbers in front of me for him being the hottest attraction in the whole country. I mean, maybe the Von Erics would be up there too, but you know, if, if, if you're looking at that, I mean, that that right there is a major reason why I think he should be in there. He was probably the the be- not probably he was definitely the best thing that Bill Watts ever had going while he was running Mid South. You know, and it, he's just a he's just a major name that belongs in there. Um, I voted for um, Ricky Starr. I feel like he's a really important figure from kind of the 50s golden age of wrestling he's one of the only ones and curry's another one but he's one of the only ones that i would consider important enough from that era that aren't at least from an american point of view that are not yet in so i felt it was important for him to go in um let's see i voted for ole anderson i feel like in in his case there's a lot of different reasons and uh you know he'll never make it into a wwe hall of fame that's a whole other story um great talker great worker great mind for the business longevity just a part of so many different things over the years uh, georgia championship wrestling and then working for crockett and wcw being a part of the four horsemen you know he he's got a lot of things to recommend him as well um i voted for adrian street um i, I feel he has longevity going for him i feel like he has cultural significance going for him and just uh kind of he's one of those guys where i feel like he's more like what they what they would used to call kind of the wrestler's wrestler like the guy that is highly respected you know by the boys by the other workers and um uh, i i feel like over the years and i i didn't look at the numbers for how he did with you know how dave breaks it down by historians and active wrestlers retired wrestlers and things i don't know how well he did there but i do know from talking to a lot of 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 wrestlers over the years that he has a lot of respect um so i voted for him um i think that's it for the active for the uh, in the wrestler category here as i look this over um for non-wrestlers i voted for jim crockett um junior i think um you know another important promotional figure i mean basically the only one of the territorial promoters who actually can really truly say that they went 
head to head and toe to toe with with Vince McMahon and 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 really kind of held their own, at least for a little while there. Um, so I think he belongs in there. I voted for Larry Matisek, just so important to the St. Louis scene, you know, working with Sam Mushnick, just a really important uh, figure in terms of of being n- not just behind the scenes, just everything in the office, on the air, as a historian, important guy. Um, Don Owen, who another one, he's another head scratcher for me. I mean, one of the longest running promoters in you know pro wrestling history, and and his not just him, but even his company, even more so. And the fact that they were even still going well into the nineties, or at least a couple of years into the nineties, I think he absolutely deserves a nod. Um, I voted for Stanley Weston. I know that I, I remember last year when Bill Apter went in, there was a a discussion. I, I think it was actually on the 605 where the thought was, well, how could Bill Apter go in if Stanley Weston hasn't gone in yet? And, you know, I love Bill and Bill's great, but but I think even Bill would agree with that, to be honest with you. And so I think that I think uh, that's that's kind of a gimme. I mean, that's a giant of of the history of wrestling magazines. He's kind of like the Nat Fleischer you know, of wrestling magazines. So, so he's got to be in there. And I voted for grand wizard. Cause, uh, w- cause I feel like, and uh, again, there's so many head scratchers. This is, I love Dave, but this is one of the issues I have with the hall of fame is you run into these names on there where you go, how in the world is this person not in? And, uh, you know, you're talking about it from a talking point of view, which is one, you know, one of the most important things that a manager does. Um, I think he was untouchable. I mean, I, I wouldn't call him the greatest all around of all time. I think that would be Bobby Heenan. But I think just from a talking point of view, I think I might call him the, the greatest of all time. So so from that aspect of being a wrestling manager, uh, not just as Grand Wizard, but also as Abdullah, the, as Abdullah Farouk, you know, because of the especially now with the Sheik book that I'm working on, just seeing how important he was to that act for a number of years as well. Um, he is, that was an easy vote for me. So those are my picks. There's a lot of interesting things here, but let's open up the conversation talking about what is probably the most controversial thing this year, Kenny Omega (laughs) getting into the hall of fame. Now, I think it's been brought up already longevity. That's supposed to be one of the things that you look at when nominating someone or not nominating when voting for someone for the wrestling observer newsletter hall of fame, whether you like Kenny or not. What can't be denied is that he's in the middle of his career right now. And I want to get your thoughts. No one here has voted for him. I didn't vote for him either. But what are your thoughts on Kenny Omega at this point in his career getting into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame? Again, to to your point, Brian, while there's so many guys who, to me and to probably every one of us, is a no-brainer who can't get the support, but there's someone who's an active wrestler right now in the moment we don't know how things are going to play out the next couple of years. And he gets into the Hall of Fame. I got to start with our seething mad Alan Blackstock. I'm glad you came to me because I was chomping at the bit there to, to, to say my point. Well, let's look at it this way. What Kenny Omega is in the Japanese category, um, I believe. Um, so yes, he if is. he's in the Japanese category, why would... Why is everyone discussing his last year in AEW? Should that be considered? Should he be in the American category? Because I think it's it's all political. I think he's been put in, and I really believe this, Brian, the more and more I think about it, he's been put in the Japanese category to guarantee he can get in. Because if he was in the US category, which where he should be, is because that's where he's based and that's where his career is going to be now moving forward, he wouldn't have got in. He wouldn't have got enough votes. He got 133 votes. Slaughter got 182 and didn't get in. 
So it's because he was put in that category and people are voting, oh, it's the last year that's really brought him over the edge. Well, he shouldn't be counting that last year because he wasn't in that category. So that's my major take on Kenny Omega. Um, I do think he's a great wrestler overall, but I think the other thing to look at, um, he was a great wrestler for three years. Uh, he was a great wrestler before that, but where? Where was he? Look at Ring of Honor. He, he barely got a sniff in Ring of Honor. If he was such a fantastic worker for all these years, you know, he would have got more of a run there. What was the reason he didn't? He had this... I love for Japan, you know, can't knock him too much um, for, for that if that's what they wanted to do. DDT was, what, arguably the fifth, fourth, fifth biggest promotion. At times, people say third, they did some good shows, did some good houses. But that's not Hall of Fame being in that second, third tier uh, promotion for a long time. So it's that th- three-year run we're looking at, 2015 to 2018, that we'll talk about. And he had some absolutely phenomenal phenomenal matches. But in that period, you know, could argue that he have the same standard of matches day in, day out as someone like Anishi. Um, looking back at other candidates, did he have that absolute longevity in terms of top matches someone like a Tawei. I don't believe he did. I think there's an argument for Kenny Omega, but I think if you put him in the right category where he should be, which is the US category, he won't get in. So I just think it's it's it really annoyed me that the more I thought about it, Brian, the more he he's been put in that category to help him get the votes. And he only just snuck in as well. If he's this, you know, all all time worker, you know, look at someone like Kabashi, someone like that. I know Kabashi had a few more years. Well no maybe he didn't, um to be honest. Kabashi was the same age really when he went in. And Kabashi got, what, 95% of the votes. And if Kenny Omega's this awesome, awesome, going to be the, the greatest guy of all time that we've ever seen, 61%, you know, doesn't really do it for me. That's a very interesting point, a very interesting take, because you are right. It's based on the category that he's in that put him over the top. There are a lot of guys that you look at the ballot, you look how many votes they got, but then you look at the percentage of the vote they got for that specific grouping, and that's what killed him. And Kenny Omega clearly put over the top based on New Japan. He's in the Japan category. We're supposed to, I guess, judge him just based on the Okada program, the last several years in New Japan. I know there's an argument to be made that him and Jericho is what caused Tony Khan to say, that's it. Dad, give me your checkbook. We're starting a wrestling company, whatever it may be. But is that enough? And again, he's in the middle of his career. John, let me get your thoughts on this. Yeah, it's. Uh, I agree with a lot, a lot, if not most of what Seething Allen just said um <laughs> it's interesting he had a a, a great 2018 a huge year for him and he got considerably less votes that year which is very interesting to me personally um i also i don't like voting for active wrestlers um just generally speaking um like i'm happy to look at his career in you know 2030 and see how his career pans out uh, it's you know look at you know look at Kerry Von Erich or Sergeant Slaughter. What if we were able to vote you know Sergeant Slaughter in in 1985 or Kerry Von Erich in you know in 1988? That right there is um, a fantastic point. And you look at so many of those guys that are stuck on the ballot from that period of time, like the Junkyard Dog and Sergeant Slaughter and Kerry Von Erich. If all three of those guys were up on the ballot in 1984 or 1985, they would probably all get in. Yeah, it's you know quantifying a a wrestler's rank or whatever you want to call it is difficult enough when looking at their entire career. But at least if you're looking at an entire career, you're sort of doing an apples to apples comparison. But when you're comparing someone whose career is over versus someone who is still very active, it becomes apples to oranges. And I think I think it's unfair to 
you know, to the to the guys who have completed their careers. Um, and, and like, what if you know? Let's say, what if Kenny Omega gets a deal outside of, of wrestling, uh, similar to you know to like Slaughter's GI Joe deal? You know, do, he gets in for an exceptional two to three years. You know, uh, but Junkyard Dog doesn't. You know, so it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a hard argument to make for for his induction now for me personally just because i don't like the active wrestlers going in for the for the reasons i just said and did he really create like this massive boom for new japan in the u.s now let's look at it did he really um the, the, the faltering of a little bit he was supposed to be the setup guy wasn't he for that i know he moved to AEW, but he didn't really give him that catalyst that you know he should hang a hall of fame voter on and i'll tell you fumi saito's take earlier in this show is Kenny Omega was just one of the top guys. New Japan is not New Japan under Antonio Inoki, where there is one top guy and everyone else is under that. New Japan is a system for the last several years of four or five top guys. And if one of them leaves, they replace that top guy and everything moves on. And his argument was, and he is an active Japanese reporter, he's there, that Kenny Omega was just one of the four or five guys, and that Kenny Omega leaving didn't have any real horrible damage to New Japan. So, I mean, that's another thing to look at. I mean, so we're really basing, I mean, I, I assume that a lot of the votes Kenny Omega has received is based purely on the Okada matches, the hoopla around getting seven stars, about breaking the five-star system. I think it's all of that. And again, there is an argument to be made that it, if it's a Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, or we're basing this off the stars of the Wrestling Observer, then Kenny Omega's a first ballot Hall of Famer. But if we're looking at a bigger picture, if we're looking at longevity, and I've, I've said it before, I think you look at longevity, but you also look at maximum impact. If someone had maximum impact for four or five years, Tiger Mask, two years, maximum impact, no-brainer, Hall of Famer. But I think that there are, all of these other things they look at. Let me turn it over to you, Brian. What do you think about Omega? Well, I, I think this kind of exposes a, a big flaw for me in the voting system, which is um, that the, he, you know, one of the rules is that all you need is to have been active for 15 years, right now, or at least active in a major company. Now, I, I, I think that is what is the root of this problem because um, I also have a, a hard time voting for people that are currently active, not just active, but you know, this is wrestling. 15 years in, a guy, a, a guy could still be in the prime of his career, or may, or maybe not even reached it yet. So, I, <laughs> what's hilarious to me is I think this is actually something that the WWE we all of fame gets right that the observer one doesn't which is that you need to be done you, you need to be done to, to even be considered to go in or or at least done in terms of like the main kind of portion of your career and your drawing power i don't think that someone should be eligible until they are no longer a fully active wrestler and i think that's how you solve problems like this because here's the thing now look at this from the we know he's in the japanese category right look at this from the point of view of an american wrestling fan who maybe doesn't um follow japanese wrestling all that much now okay he was active for 15 years but to the majority of these people they 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 only have heard of the guy from the last year or two, and they're looking at this going, "What? Like Ken, Ken, Kenny Omega from AEW, the the guy that I just started watching like a year and a half ago, is going in this Hall of Fame?" Like, I I think it 
I think in a lot of ways, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame is the most respectable or legit Hall of Fame that wrestling has. But I think this is a major flaw right there. And, and it hurts to me. It does hurt the credibility of the Hall of Fame when you see things like that and you go, OK, Sergeant Slaughter, not in. Haystacks Calhoun, not in. Kenny Omega, in. Whereas to most fans, he's he's a relative newcomer again. And this is especially from a United States, you know, uh, you know, Western centric point of view. But he's he he's a relatively new guy. So uh, it was baffling to me that he would even have been on there until I saw that, you know, that 15 year rule, you know, and that's what got John Cena in there early. And which, again, John Cena, no brainer. Absolutely. But not in the middle of his career, you know. I completely agree. And let me open up the questioning a little further. John, you and I both voted for Rick and Scott Steiner. And yeah. this is the first time I voted for them. And like you said, and it was kind of the exact same thinking I had. These guys, between 1989 and 1994, 1995, again, the WWF run wasn't perfect. They still had great matches. I mean, go watch yeah. them against the Hearts. Them and the Samoans had good matches. They had good matches. Them and the Quebecers is better than people remember. Money Inc. Money Inc. But watch them before them. Watch them in WCW. Watch them in New Japan. They mm. were one of the most dynamic tag teams of all time. They invented moves. They got over. They were high impact. Their match quality was always there. You pointed that out. If Kenny Omega, we assume, is primarily getting in based on the quality of his work in the ring, then how does how do the Steiner brothers not get in? For a similar period of time, a similar length of time, that they had that quality in the ring. And, you know, a lot of people may look at Scott Steiner after the team broke up and say, you know, oh, that guy's nuts. I wouldn't vote for him. Rick Steiner really didn't do too much after the Steiner brothers. But to look at them, and, you know, there's no tag team category. It's just lumped in with everyone else. To look at what the Steiner brothers did between 1989 and 1994, it's hard for me to believe that there's any tag team in wrestling that would be a better candidate than the Steiners. What do you think, John? Yeah, I agreed. And I think this is even something that you've, you guys have talked about on the show in past years, like the, the eventual option of a, of a tag team category in the Hall of Fame. Like, would that, would that be a, a wise addition uh, as far as getting some of these guys in in a, in a more expedited fashion? Uh, what do you guys think about that? I think it would. I think there's, you know, there's an argument for that, and you get the fabs in, and you get people like that. Um, I don't know if there's a worry that you dilute it at this stage of the game, though. You know, the, the Hall of Fame's been going since what ninety six. Um, yeah. it'd be difficult to change that now. Dave doesn't change anyway, so um, to make him change on this, I, I think it would be a wasted effort. But I do see the sentiment and the point, though. Yeah, and you know, you know, Brian, you kind of raised the issue before, and I never thought of it in the uh, context that you laid out. The Valiant Brothers, you know, they weren't the Steiner Brothers in the ring, and a lot of people will think of Jimmy Valiant in the '80s and Johnny Valiant in the '80s, <laughs> but they were. I never thought of it this way, but they were the tag team of the '70s in the WWF. They had big runs in, you know, for Dick the Bruiser. I mean, it wasn't like they only worked for the WWF. I think there probably is a case to be made for them. And again, you're talking about a team that was in a top position and even main evented shows at Madison Square Garden, but they were in a top position in the biggest territory in terms of 
the size of the crowds going to the major arenas, there probably is a good argument for them. But what are your thoughts about tag teams in the Hall of Fame? Um, well, again, it's it's one of those things where then you start thinking, okay, are they gonna are they gonna how how much can we fragment this? Is there gonna be a women's category? Is there gonna be a category just for managers? I I sort of lean on the side of kind of keeping it the way it is. I don't know what the solution though is for, for people like that, that do belong in there. Like a tag team, like the Steiner brothers absolutely should be in there. The Valiant brothers, like I said, I mean, you know, I, I I'm in a lot of these kind of WWF Facebook groups and we'll every now and then the question will come up, name the name, the number one baby face tag team of the seventies. And it's just like, uh, <laughs> it was just all about the Valiant brothers. I mean, it, it was a heel tag team decade and the valiant brothers in the wwf were it that they were like the superstars i mean they were on top with like bruno and strongbow at the garden like they were main eventing at the number one you know kind of market in the country you know on the cover of all the wrestling magazines so yeah i mean teams like that should go in i i just don't know i don't know if if the answer is i mean obviously if you have a tag team category right the odds of them going in go way, way up. But, I, but I'm but i just not a huge fan of kind of watering it down, if that makes sense. Well, here's a question that was brought up on another segment on this show. And I've never voted for Jim Melby. Nothing against Jim Melby at all. But should there be a historian's category? Because if Jim Melby's in there primarily based on being a historian, which I think is what it is, it's more that than, you know, just being number two at the wrestling news for so many years. Then what about the J. Michael Kenyons and the Fred Hornbys and the various people, you know, to this day, Scott Teal, Tim Hornbaker, uh, you know, Tim Hornbaker may have to be a little bit older. He may be under the, uh, you know, the age limit, <laughs> whatever it may be. But should we look at something like that as a separate category? You know, the Baseball Hall of Fame has baseball players and managers and then as a separate category for the writers. What do you th- what do you guys think? John, what do you think? I I. I... Yes. Um, again, I, I, not to err on, on, on the side of, of watering the, the Hall of Fame down or anything, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, just oops, who did I vote for in this category? You know, I, you know, like a, like a James Melby. Um, like without James, someone like James Melby, I, I don't know if we're having this conversation today. You know, um, just if someone like him in terms of wrestling history, the, the preservation thereof. Uh, and a lot of these guys, um, Melody specifically who acted as a bridge, you know, from the after Weston mags to the Kaiser mags and programs, which were slightly more based in reality. Uh, and then the transition to, to the newsletters. Um, I think without these guys, like we don't exist. Um, you know, I mean, Dave's I, never I think it's put a bit of a moot point, though, John, in some ways, because the problem is you can have the category and you can put a load of guys on, but Dave's not going to put himself on. And there's an yeah. argument definitely that Dave needs to be on there and he's not going to yeah. do it. So I don't think, again, that it's going to happen. See, I, I'll just jump in and say this real quick, and you guys can say what you think. I think Dave is a Hall of Famer because he you could argue that Dave is one of the most influential people in professional wrestling in the last 50 years. You could argue that Dave's influence has changed the way people look at wrestling, changed the way people treat wrestling, changed the way the wrestlers perform themselves, changed the way we grade wrestling. I think Dave, and he probably wouldn't admit it, and he probably doesn't want to hear it, but (laughs) although I don't necessarily agree with all his opinions, I think if you look at Dave as a whole, he's on the short list of people who changed the business in the 
modern era. I think he would be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think one of the most depressing things to me, and there are many depressing things about wrestling Twitter, but one of the most depressing things about wrestling Twitter is that you have this kind of contingent of fans who, and I hate to have kind of an age bias here, who I tend to think are pretty young, haven't been watching a long time, haven't been following a long time, who just really, I'll be very blunt, just have no concept of the significance of Dave Meltzer. They just, and I'm not trying to kiss his ass. I mean, this is just in my mind, an objective fact, Uh, his significance to the history of the business. And it's like, everyone just sort of, you know, you'll find these opinions floating around, which, which in the past used to only be held by, you know, people in the business who maybe didn't like him because they had a ax to grind because he buried them or something, or they didn't like the way they were being written about. So, I mean, within the business, there were a lot of unpopular business uh, opinions about Meltzer. But now it seems to have like bled outward where you have kind of fans, I guess, maybe seeing wrestlers trashing Meltzer and they just think it's the cool thing to do. And I sometimes I feel like being the voice of reason and saying like, you know, sort of like what we what you're saying about Melby, like none of this would be happening without him. Like like his significance as a wrestling journalist, he's a treasure. I, I mean, when he got, you know, God forbid, when the day comes when he's not doing this anymore. That is going to be a vacuum that is impossible to be filled. Impossible. I think about that probably once a week. Yes. Honestly, quite honestly. I, I think about like what's going to happen you when, for bastard. whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then we'll be left with what Wade Keller and Bakes. Fucking hell. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like what, like what, what happens with, with this Hall of Fame? Like I, I have so many questions and I am a morbid bastard, but I, I think about it probably once a week, like what's going to happen. And, you know, and I, I like, I get so wound up thinking about, and it's just these, these kids trashing him on Twitter and he's just clearly he's just messing with a lot of these kids. Um, you know, but it's like, I don't want him to spend his time doing that. There's, there's more it's, work to be done. We're good. It's the Bruce know? Pritchard effect. Unfortunately, I think Bruce Pritchard's really introduced a lot of people to historical WWE historical stuff. So let's talk about, you know, 87 onwards. If we're talking, is that really historical or not? But, you know, a period of time before now, uh, and he's, he's often buried Meltzer, even though, you know, we secretly know he was in conversation for years. He's buried other people as well as hurt their, you know, perception to modern fans like a Jerry Jarrett. Um, mm-hmm. he, he's not done a great job for Meltzer. He's, uh, even though without some of the source material that Comrade uses, there won't be a show in the first place, but that's uh, another yeah. discussion. But I think, yeah, Dave, to me is is a key historical figure and you know hugely influential person and someone that i look up to you know and i have since when i first got the observer which would be what 94 95 something like that so yeah um someone hugely influential in my fandom you know got me to this point where i'd be a quasi historian now arguably in some ways um i wouldn't have got there without you know dave's influence and you know to that point just the last week on twitter and we just talked about this on the jim Cornette uh jim Cornette's drive through actually Someone, I forget what the, what made it come up, but Dave did a tweet about the most historically significant matches in wrestling history, and he had a list of them, and one of them on there, and he got into a back and forth with someone, he said that Ricky Dozan and Kimura versus the Sharp Brothers was more, I forget the exact wording, so I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but more historically significant than Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 3. And some fan, and I assume it's a younger fan, I don't know that, but they tagged Jim Cornette and myself on it and said, 
Look at what he's saying now. He's nuts. And I jumped in. I said, actually, he's right. <laughs> Good for you. You know what I'm thinking? Do you know who Ricky Dozan is? Do you know what that match did for an entire country, for an entire industry? I'm not saying Hogan versus Andre isn't significant. It certainly is. It certainly is. But that other match created an industry <laughs> that goes on to this day. I mean, it's two different things, but I think that's part of the thing is that there aren't, I don't know if there are people who just aren't intellectually curious or if there isn't just an easy forum, an easy way to learn about these things, if people don't care to learn about these things. But there's a great example right there of someone who went right for the I'll tag Jim Cornette and I'll say, look at how crazy Dave is, when in reality, what Dave said was 100% accurate. I think he's done so much to preserve the history. And I think part of what's what's hurting him now online and it, it goes beyond just wrestling because i mean I, i've written in a lot of different genres and there's there's this attitude online which which some of you may have come across that you know so much of writing now of, of kind of what used to be you know kind of just copy is is now being confused with marketing material so if you're not if you're criticizing anything in the slightest you're a hater or if you're if you're not praising or trying to promote something somehow that you're not doing your job which is of course not at all what the job of a journalist is i mean we, you know we see that in all walks of life happening now in america where, where people are being discredited just because they're taking they're trying to take a critical stance you know it's 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 like the observer, you know, the joke in wrestling and Meltzer has always talked about it was it's the only business that doesn't really understand what a trade publication is. So like, you you know, this is what they're supposed to be doing. And I mean, he was a huge influence on me. I mean, one of my one of the highlights when I was working at WWE magazine was being in a boardroom meeting, pitching magazine ideas directly to Vince McMahon and having him tell me unprompted. That I needed to take my head out of Dave Meltzer's ass. That's, that, <laughs> that is like, that should be on my resume. That's amazing. <laughs> oh boy. Well, I guess we can't go any further without addressing one of the elephants in the room. Alan, everyone thinks, oh, Alan's going to be on the show. Alan's going to lose his mind because Big Daddy did not get the support once again. Where are you right now and your thoughts about Big Daddy? You kind of teased it at the top of the show. and. As we look at the ballot, I mean, Johnny Saint came very close to getting in. Uh, Mark Rollerball Rocco came very close to getting in. So there are some British candidates on the cusp, and we'll see how things play out next year. But what are your thoughts about the British candidates, and what are your thoughts specifically about the candidacy of Big Daddy? Well, uh, the problem with Big Daddy I've got at the moment is there's no new material. Nothing's new is going to come out about him. He's been taught to death, and I don't want to bore the listeners here by going through that again. Um, just want to say he lost 12 votes from last year to this year. His percentage went down by 10%. Um, I think more and more you're going to get other candidates on the ballot that arguably, when you do the research, that could be stronger than Big Daddy from a European perspective. There's a load of French candidates. I know Dave's um, got Kolov now. Um, it's a historical candidate on there. And I think we're going to see more and more of those type of guys from France um, and other places like that, Spain and France, are going to be spoken about and looked at. And who did draw more than Daddy? But there's an argument that the facilities in those countries warmer 
they've got outside places that are going to be able to fit 20, 30,000 in football grounds in the UK in the 70s and early 80s. Culturally, it wasn't a thing to host other events a lot. There was other, there was examples where it did happen, but I think wrestling just didn't strike those deals, the promoters with the, with the owners of those football clubs to do that. But moving away from daddy, I think the major thing for me now, Brian, is just to talk about Johnny saying and how people are just sucking at the teat of Meltzerism when it comes to someone like Johnny Saint. Um, they, they believe the hype. I mean, this guy, he, he had a tour in Jakarta, a couple of tours, Brian, in the 2000s. Um, that's what turned people on. Um, Jody Fleisch had a couple of tours with CZW in the early 2000s and influenced a whole heap of other wrestlers as well. Um, there's not an argument for Jody Fleisch being on. Yeah, he didn't have the body of work that Johnny Saint had. Um, but Johnny Saint wasn't someone that was always on the top of the bills. He wasn't on the bills around the UK as much as people think. And he nowhere was one of the best workers of that era as well. There's there's Alan Sargent's of this world. You've got your Steve Grays. You've got your Marty Jones. You've got your John Cortez's. They're your top top tier British style workers uh, another one Jimmy Brakes who I thought was absolutely one of the greatest heels of all time but he's not going to be on the ballot anymore because of other reasons um, having dementia and killing or assaulting and killing someone very similar to Vernon Garnier uh, who's still on the ballot but he he's not and I, I won't get into it because it is what it is now I don't think I want to win that battle regardless and I don't think I want to get the support um, to get him back on that ballot but jo- Johnny's saying I think, you know, he's, he's best pals with the likes of your Chris Heroes, um, who looks up to him immensely or work with him very closely. Uh, Regal as well, that's got a lot of sway. Um, and I think he's been brought up there as this godlike figure in British wrestling when I think he wasn't the draw that people think he was and he wasn't the in-ring talent that people think he was and was better practitioners of that style. Uh, moving on from Johnny saying, we've got Mar Rocco. Uh, Mar Rocco, fantastic, fantastic heel. Uh, I think Dave Meltzer put it best the other day on one of his uh, radio shows where he said he had very much like a Terry Funk heel, a very believable heel at times. Um, you can't believe in the, the wrestling, but you can believe in me type thing. Uh, and he was, he was that great heel in British wrestling. I think for him, he was hugely influential in some ways because of the Japanese runs that he had as Black Tiger. Um, after that, his star waned as British wrestling waned. Um, people are saying, why didn't someone else come on and take Big Daddy's spot? Mark Rocco, look at him. Everyone thinks he's fantastic. Look, he's got 52% of the votes. Well, he never took Big Daddy's spot because I don't think he would have drawn at the level of Big Daddy would have done in those early to mid-80s even when Daddy's star was waning. Uh, nothing against Mark Rocco. Death bumps happen. We see that every every time a wrestler, unfortunately, passes away. Uh, Bullet Bob Armstrong uh, being another one who is a great Southern fiery baby face and at times a great heel as well. But that death bump just brought him up a bit and it got people talking. I get that. I just think with Rocco... I think he's another one that's overinflated. There's far better candidates on the ballot. Jackie Palo. I know I, I voted for him every year. I've not really spoken about him much, Brian, on the show. But for for any any listeners out there who don't have not heard of Jackie Palo, he was Mister Mister TV was his name uh, when he first appeared on TV in the fifties. He he was as good for pro wrestling as pro wrestling was as good for him. Um, he was a major, major star in the UK. Um, I think he had a level of fame, arguably on par, if not higher than Big Daddy. I think the difference for me was I didn't live in his era. I didn't. I lived at the tail end of that Daddy era. How big he was uh, with Jackie Palo. I have to go back and speak to people that have you know are very old now or have passed away, like family members, my grandfather, things like that. Who've heard of him, knew the star he was. 
I think what hurts someone like a Jackie Palo in the eyes of, you know, Adrian Streets, who also has a bit of influence still on voters in that UK scene, um, he released his telltale, his tell all book uh, in the 1970s and I think that really hurt him with his peers I think they felt that they he undermined their trade or what they did for a living um, but I think he was a very big star and I feel he's someone that shouldn't be denied Brian I think he was a level of stardom I know we spoke about this for others as well that you're bigger than the system Jackie Pollock was that bigger than the system type character. I know we spoke about JYD and others as well like that uh, Sergeant Slaughter but he's someone I'm going to start pushing a bit more and reliving a bit more about his history online as well to try and get people just to see what the numbers he did i think with someone in historical figure i think the numbers count because we don't got the footage of them to assess them as a worker as an as a in-ringer worker anyway so i think it is that that ability to see the figures which allows us to put more argument into a candidate you know, I abstained from voting for that category this year, but if I had, I definitely would have voted for Big Daddy and Jackie Pello for a lot of those reasons you just laid out. Bigger than the business, crossover appeal, maximum impact. People walking on the street know who they are, whether or not they've ever truly paid any attention to pro wrestling. I want to turn back to the tag team conversation, and I'll explain why in a second. You know, John, on your ballot, you had the Von Brauners and Saul Weingroff, and Brian, on your ballot, you had, as we spoke about earlier, the Valiants. But more importantly, on your ballot, you had Miguel Perez, who drops off. He's not on the ballot anymore. I mean, this was his last year. He's now off the ballot. And I think that may be one of the best arguments for there being a tag team division on the ballot. Antonina Rocca is in the Hall of Fame. No-brainer Hall of Famer, one of the biggest stars in the history of wrestling. But I think there almost needs to be a second focus on the tag team of Rocca and Perez. And looking at what they did, you said it before. I think it's 100%. They were the biggest tag team, most successful tag team of all time. Look at the business they did. Look at the business they did consistently in New York. I think that Miguel Perez being on there alone hurts them. But if you have Miguel Perez and Antonina Rocca, I think it's a clear-cut first ballot Hall of Fame tag team. They should be in there. Even though Rocca's already in, I think we do need to have a secondary focus on a Hall of Fame tag team, which you can almost look at as separate from just Rocca, the singles wrestler. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, and I mean, that not to contradict what I've been saying, but I mean, that is a really solid point because the thing about Perez is anything other than the Rocca tag team, there's really nothing there, I mean, at least in my opinion, that would make him even in the conversation for the Hall of Fame. I mean, he was a mid-card guy, He was, or sometimes even lower than that. Being with Raka was what elevated him. And and for most people, maybe looking at the ballot, if if they're seeing him, even for the ones that are knowledgeable to about the era and everything, maybe they were just thinking of him mainly as a singles guy and not so much thinking of the tag team. I mean, that is his ticket to ride as far as the Hall of Fame is that tag team. So, I mean, yeah, it, it is sort of a case to be made for – for doing that i see what what happens though (laughs) i just keep thinking of what they do with the wwe hall of fame where you have a guy who's like well this guy's a three-time hall of famer you know and they have all these different you know ways of people getting in and but but you're right i mean at this point i think that might be the only way that that perez does get in because the tag team thing is I i mean the the rocket tag team to me, is up there. Maybe the Road Warriors are the only other other ones where you could say, okay, this incredibly 
long running, high drawing main event tag team. Um, but that's the only way he's going to get in is through the tag team association. Because looking at the other way, and, and John, I want you to jump in in a second, but looking at the other way, the Freebirds are in the Hall of Fame. But you could argue that Terry Gordy had a separate career outside of the Freebirds that's potentially Hall of Fame level. He was the UWF champion. He was a single star. He, even though he had Michael Hayes with him, he had Buddy Roberts with him. He had plenty of singles matches. Goes to Japan, separate career, teaming up with Steve Dr. Death Williams. He's in with the Freebirds, and it takes in everything he did as a solo act. It has to work in reverse as well. And that's why I think someone like Rocca and Perez, or, or two guys like Rocca and Perez, there needs to be an inclusion for a landmark tag team like that, even though Rock is already in. But John, let me go to you. What do you think? I think you guys have talked about this in previous years also, um, but you can make the same argument um, with Steamboat and Youngblood, you know, Jay Youngblood being in the, in the Miguel Perez slot. Um, you know, I don't think Jay Youngblood's going in on his own. Uh, but as a tag team, yes. I think they're 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 no brainers for a, a a great babyface Hall of Fame tag team. Yeah, I think I think the Steamboat Young Bud thing is a great comparison because that is, that really is that you're talking about another team there that probably doesn't get the credit that they deserve for being one of the top tag teams of the '80s. I mean, or especially the first half of it. Um, yeah, and Young Bud being the Perez type of figure there. That's that's another great example. I think you could argue that they were the top babyface tag team of the first half of the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you've you got could. strong candidates, guys, if I'm going to be honest. You've got Goldman and Goliath. I think they're, as a tag team, and the Von Brauners, I think they've got some fantastic uh, arguments for those guys to be in above a Valiance. I mean, no offense, but the Valiants have dropped off this year. They just didn't get the votes. I think, to me, and, and I, I'm not from the Northeast, and it's a, it is a perspective thing. I think that's very important as well. So I'm not discounting what you've said, Brian, in terms of the Valiants, because I've not lived in that area the same as you're not going to fully comprehend the level of stardom that Big Daddy had. I get that. Um, but I think for a tag team to have some argument that there should be a separate um, voting category for those types of tag teams, they should be doing okay to, to fair to strong on a cat on, on the ballot as it is, you know, getting those 30 to 40 percent. Rick and Scott Steiner, 35 percent argument for them. The Valiance, maybe not based on the votes that we've got under the existing structure. And again, we're talking about teams that have very different qualifications for a Hall of Fame. The Von Brauners, we're talking about one of the best drawing heel tag teams in many southern territories. The Steiner brothers are talking about one of the best in ring tag teams of all time. The Valiants are talking about a tag team that was for a longer period of time than any other tag team on top in the Northeast. I mean, every tag team has a different thing. Gorbin and Goliath, you know, I had Dan Farron on the show. Dan Farron was there. He was in Los Angeles. He saw them live. To him, it's a no-brainer. Of course, they're Hall of Fame tag team. As far as tag teams, it's, it's you know how a lot, of, a lot of times we use uh, Dick Murdoch as our threshold. Uh, like, is this guy better than Dick Murdoch? Um, and it's for the, for the tag teams, it's, you, you almost have to, you know, set up like I, I try to look at, are they better than the Andersons? You know, are they are they equal to or better than the Anderson brothers? Any 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 version of the Anderson brothers. Um, and it's, so it's, it's it gets it's, it's tricky. It's very, very tricky. Any version, even Gene and Lars. Yeah. Well, More that's so. the original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It is the original team. That is the yeah. original team. It is an interesting point, too, about Threshold. And Dick Murdoch has been that guy that so many people have looked at and said, you know, Dick Murdoch's not in that right there is the dividing line. Above Murdoch, below Murdoch. Do any of you guys have your own Threshold wrestler that you think of when doing this? I've always gone for Dick Murdoch. I think I've been a long-time reader and on on various message boards over the years, Brian, that, that that's been the guy mentioned a lot of the time as the, the person, if you're going to do well, you need to have a better argument than Dick Murdoch. And I think it's, it's still valid. Dick Murdoch had such a varied career over the course of 25 years or so, uh, drew various different places, um, was in a position to draw, was a position to be trusted, was a good tag team wrestler, a good singles wrestler. Um, and I think him as a yardstick works for me I'm interested to see any of you three, including yourself, Brian, is there someone else that you think that, you know, is that yardstick that if you do better than them, you're, you're a no brainer. You know, it changes for me all the time and I've gone back and forth on Murdoch, but I'll give you an example. And I brought this up earlier in the show and one of the other segments with Kenny Omega getting in for what I assume he got in for. Should that open the door for someone like Barry Windham? who was an elite-level worker in the ring for, at a minimum, 1984 to 1989. A period somewhat similar in length, either a little bit longer or a little bit shorter than Kenny Omega. So does that open the door if we're saying Kenny Omega got in because of the quality of his matches? And I think it really is more that than anything else, because New Japan just went on. (laughs) After he left, they just moved on. And they said, okay, we'll see you later. We're going to move on. But does that open the door for someone who was an elite level worker for a period of time of five years? I think when it comes to a threshold thing, I think there are precedents set by who gets into the Hall of Fame. And you could look at that and you could say, that's interesting. Can I apply that to something? You know, Tiger Mask, I've always said it before. Tiger Mask is in the Hall of Fame for two years. I mean, he did other things. He went to form the original UWF from Maeda. He wrote his book. He did various other things. But he's in the Hall of Fame for two years. So that means if someone had a Hall of Fame level two years, should it be in? I vote for Bill Goldberg in the Hall of Fame. And I think about who's in there already. And I try to say, can any of these lessons of any of these guys that are in be applied to someone else? And that's why I think, and I don't know if I would vote for Barry Windham, but I think there's an argument to be made now if people like Kenny Omega are getting in based on the quality of their work. And I look at someone like the Steiner brothers and I say, okay, period of time, give them four years. You know, take a year off. Give them four years. Elite in the ring? Absolutely. Big drawing cards? Eh, not so much. Uh, Obviously, the Japanese fans went crazy for them, but they were never really responsible for drawing a big house. No, but with the name me another example of a tag team in the nineties that were in a put in position, Brian, to headline a pay per view. Well, in the, the up to the mid nineties, and they did that. They uh, wrestle it was not to wrestle one two. Sorry, it was uh, Super Bowl two. I think. Uh, no, Super Bowl, Super Bowl one. I think. Wasn't sorry, it? yeah, it was one. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what other tag teams have been in that position? You know, to co or main event. You know, a regular tag team, not a Hogan and Beefcake type tag team. Not many. I can't think of one on the top of my head from that period, from the infancy of pay-per-view up until, you know, the outsiders and people like that that were put in that position. It's hard to think of a team, even the Road Warriors. And I love that match, by the way. Steiners versus Sting and Luger. I love that match. And you watch it today and, you know, there's not a lot of flips and not a lot of things happening, but look at the crowd. Listen to the crowd reaction and the intensity of the guys. 
and the two babyface tag teams, and it's easy to screw up a babyface versus babyface match, but that match worked. That match was great. But again, I, I look at the Steiners and I say, what else could we apply? You know, the Von Erichs, I think, you know, this was brought up earlier. I actually am at the point now where I think that David and Kerry and Kevin should be on as a unit between nineteen seventy-eight and you know, David died in early eighty-four, but I would argue until early eighty-six, because you're talking Texas, you're talking St. Louis, you're talking Japan, and you know, another argument, and I'll use this one I made earlier, and I used it one of the reasons I justified voting for Pampero Furpo, is that even though we're supposed to look at wrestling on a worldwide basis for the Hall of Fame, I think that you also have to look at the territories and you have to look at who meant the most to different territories. And when I did the Pampero Furpo special, you realize if there's a Mount Rushmore, and I hate to use that, uh, you know, as my uh, as my uh, tool here, but hear me out. If you say that, you know, there's a group of four or five of the biggest stars ever in the history of a territory, Furpo's on that list for Hawaii, for Detroit, and someone who had impact beyond that. So I started to look at that too. The idea of, you know, again, we're supposed to look at everything on a worldwide basis, but I think you have to look at it at a local basis too. If Bob Armstrong is one of the biggest wrestlers in the history of Alabama wrestling, Alabama's a big state. Don't you have to look at that? And again, there's another argument I made earlier that maybe there's a Southern bias in the Hall of Fame because there's not a single member of the Fuller or Welch family. Roy Welch had a bigger territory than anyone yeah. for 50 years. Yeah. And I'm now just rambling going from one thing right to another. And if someone doesn't stop me, I'm going to No, I think it's a good point. I'll stop you. But I think it's a good point, Brian. <laughs> but, um, you know, Mongolian Stomper as well. You know, masked interns. You know, people like that that on a regional level were really big and drew uh, for a considerable amount of time. They're just not in vogue, popular type candidates. They're not sexy candidates, let's just say. I know that's probably <laughs> the completely the wrong term to use, but I'm going to use it anyway. There's not as much interest on them. Yeah, you can dig the career, but you're not going to find that that body of matches um, that is going to, you know, pique your interest if, if, if many matches at all. So it's a struggle for those more territorial guys that worked in territories that didn't have major TV. A lot of stuff isn't on isn't on film and I think that does affect those, those older candidates um, significantly. And that last point for me about some about Dave and the Hall of Fame in terms of his weirdness of it. Um, we've got Enrique Torres, and I believe anyone that was working pre-1950 um, isn't on the ballot, but he is. And I don't know why he's still on the ballot. It confuses me. I think he should just be in at this point. Um, I don't know if any of you guys can shed any light on why Dave treats him differently based on Dave's own arbitrary rules. Well, you know, let me jump in here and open it up for whatever anyone else wants to say, because this is one of the points I was going to make here. You know, I for the last couple of years, have advocated for Dave to put Roy Welch in the Hall of Fame. Not put him on the ballot, but make him one of these historical oversights. Someone who should have been in the first class of the Observer Hall of Fame. I would make the same argument for two guys that I believe are on the ballot now because I made the you know argument to Dave and he put him on the ballot. Wild Bull Curry and Morris Siegel. If Paul Bosch is in the Hall of Fame, Morris Siegel has to be in the Hall of Fame. But these are two guys... Morris Siegel died in the late 60s. Wild Bull Curry's career started a long time before that. He wrestled until the late 70s. They're on the ballot. Look at some of the other people they're on the ballot with in terms of when they were active. I think that there are still people, uh, you know, El Medico this year from the, uh, the Lucha Libre candidates. 
there are people who should have been in that first class and it was an oversight. They weren't there. But just adding them onto the ballot, some of us have talked to other people who vote, who may not be on the show, and we've seen some ballots and been horrified. Like, oh my God, how are you voting for this person? Because not everyone is informed. And a lot of people just let their feelings or what they saw when they grew up or guys that they enjoy, they let that push their opinion more than, is this person actually a Hall of Famer? If this person wasn't there, how different would the business be? And I guess that's my question to you guys. Going forward, what do we do about the historical candidates? You know, I use Morris Siegel as the example. He's on the ballot. He's never going to get the votes on the ballot. Don't let active wrestlers vote. <laughs> yeah. right. you, I mean, I don't know. I, I've seen a few ballots floating around. And I think you have as well. And some of them is just head in hands. It's like, what are you doing? You're closer to this. You do this as a job. You should know the history. It's your job to kind of know what's come before you. And the, some of the people they're voting for, and they don't have any real reason to vote for them apart from, yeah, they were cool. They were good. Um, I, they influenced me personally. But you, you yourself, pal, aren't a major star. You know, that's great. They're influencing you, but you, you know, you're nowhere near going to be someone that's going to be on a Hall of Fame ballot yourself unless something drastically changes about your career and your attitude. But that's that's another conversation. But I think seriously, though, it's the lack of quality control on the, the, the candidates. And I've said this the other day to a couple of people. I might not even be someone that should be voting on this, Brian. Uh, you know, it's easy, easy for me to sit here and say, I've got to vote. It's great. But should I have a vote, really? Do I dedicate enough time to this? Maybe I do, maybe I don't, compared to others. But I think there is definitely a quality control issue over the last few years and the advent of younger voters as well. Um, I think the, the more people that get votes now, the more likely to listen to Dave, and that worries me. I think that recency bias is something that is just so hard to shake with with anything like this. And I, I, I think I was thinking maybe one of the solutions is if they broke down the categories by smaller eras, if that makes sense. Like, OK, there's going to just be a 30s, 40s category. And if you're an expert on this era, you get to vote. And, and, and maybe that would help. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like it might get a little messy. But it might be the hope for some of these people. I mean, you, Morris Siegel is a great example of, of the recency bias problem. I mean, everybody talks about Paul Bosch because he's still in living memory. You know, there's a lot of guys that worked for him that remember him. But but Morris Siegel was was the king in Texas for, for longer, not only for longer than Bosch, but at the time that he was running Houston. I mean, Houston was like basically the booking center for the entire state. I That's mean, the right. Dallas, the Dallas circuit was basically just sort of like a subsidiary. So, I mean, he, he, he really was a bigger deal in his time, but I think again, it's just out of living memory. That's kind of the problems you run against. And yeah, I mean, it's sad to say that, you know, just because you're a worker, just because you're, you know, you get in the ring in this day and age, it doesn't mean, I mean, look, the, the, the they just there's just not a living memory. I mean, there's a lot of guys now that wrestle for a living that think that wrestling started in 1985, you know, or worse, 1995. I mean, I, I've talked to people who have told me horror stories where they've been in locker rooms, you know, kind of old timers who have been in locker rooms with young guys and they've held pictures in front of them of people like Dory Funk Jr. and Jack Briscoe and Luthes, and they didn't know who they were. They were not able to identify them visually. And these were people that make their living in a wrestling ring. So maybe the answer is actually broadening the voting base to get 
more people involved from different walks of life. I don't know. But but I do like my idea of maybe breaking it down by time period a, a little more narrowly. Yeah, I also think I would be happy if uh, there you have more 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 than one candidate per year who just goes in. You know, do do five year even um, or whatever whatever amount is a is a good amount without diluting the Hall of Fame. But like the Morris Siegel argument, um, and Roy Welch also that argument. Like the guys like that. Like I don't. They're they're just gonna they're just gonna if they're on the ballot at all, they'll likely just sit there. And fall off. Um, so I, I would be happy to see more guys just get, you know, just get put in as a historical oversight. That would, that would, that would satisfy me. If you got a man there that doesn't often like to be wrong, and in some ways that's an admission that he uh, he was wrong. So yeah. it's tough. It's tough to do with Dave, knowing his personality. I know. I think we've all dealt with him over the hey, years. Hey, listen, listen. Hans Schmidt just got in a few years ago. You know, yeah. what I mean, yeah. <laughs> he didn't go to the first class. He got in with John Cena. It was John Cena and Hans Schmidt. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. There's obviously a problem with that. And, you know, Fumi Saito had a very similar thought to you, Brian, which was there should be a 21st century category where you separate these guys, like the Kenny Omegas, from the junkyard dogs. And I know Kenny was in the Japanese category, so that's not exactly a fair comparison. But I do think there needs to be a way. Because, I mean, you know, Alan, you brought it up earlier. Look at the amount of votes some of these guys get, and they don't get in. Kenny Omega got 133 votes from the Japan category, just to use an example. Ted Turner got 146 votes, and he didn't get in. Uh, And we could argue if Ted Turner's a Hall of Famer or not, but he got more votes. He actually literally got more support, not more support via percentage of that voting group. I think that... There has to be a way to separate the people who are voting who are not necessarily into the history or knowledgeable about the history from the true geeks like us who spend way too much time seriously thinking about anyone who has been slighted from getting into the Hall of Fame. And we could have these discussions and we could have these debates. And there has to be a way to apply that to the Hall of Fame, to the actual voting process. You know, one thing that I like about the 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 pro wrestling Hall of Fame, the one that used to be in New York and now it's in Texas, you know, it's the one where they have an actual building. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's well, it's a funny yeah. story, too, because it started in upstate New York and moved to right. Wichita Falls. And now like all the guys from the New York one started another one in upstate New York again. Right. They, they have. <laughs> yeah, they have. because they had clearance, I guess, from the state because they were regulating it. Apparently, there's like some kind of. Byzantine tax reason why all these sports hall of fames are done in New York state, like the boxing ones there and all this sort of thing. And, uh, and I think, I think the baseball ones there, right. There's some, I don't know, tax reason for it. But anyway, what I was saying was one, one reason that one thing I like about how they do it is they do have narrower eras. Like they'll say, okay, uh, we have categories. So it's like, here's the early 20th century people. Here's like the early TV era. Here's the 80s and 90s. Like they do that. And I think that helps people, especially people that are earlier than living memory to go in because they're only competing against each other. So it guarantees that every year somebody's going in from that era who deserves to go in. John, Alan, any thoughts about how to improve the voting process? 
Well, I, I, there's a question I, I posed on Twitter, and no one got back to me. And I don't know if any of you three guys can shed any light on this. So it's just me being stupid. Why is it if you're a US candidate and you have been active longer than 30 years ago, you automatically move into another category? But if you are a candidate from another region, that doesn't happen. Hmm. That's a good question. It's a real and I, and I emailed Dave. Um, he asked for Q and A on his recent show about Hall of Fame. So I asked, and obviously I don't get answered. But so I just thought, what? Why? Why is that? So is it an inherent advantage for people on that US category because of that reason? They're, they're not fight, they're fighting in one category. Arguably, they might be on for fifteen years still. I'm not saying that they're going to get a further fifteen years in a further category, but it's a different chance. There's a different dynamic there to get in. And I think that needs looking at. Yeah. I mean, Fujiwara is on the same ballot with Ibushi and Omega. Is that fair? No, I think he should be moved um, onto the historical, you know, anyone that's, you know, was less than 30, or more than 30 years ago that their in-ring career ended. I think they should, you know, active major in-ring career, you know, you're going to have people like Dory Funk who wrestled up until a couple of years ago. So you, you're not going to say he's in the modern category um, or you shouldn't really. Um, I guess there is a cut off point. I think, I think what we're at now is in 1985 um, that, you, if you pre nineteen eighty five, you you're historical in the US, but if you post eighty five, I think you're just on that US category, which we have that weird amount of people. Um, like you said before, you have like a John Cena goes in and he's and, he, and he's fighting with someone, you know, like a Kerry Von Eric. It just doesn't seem right. Two big different eras. Well, what do you think about the idea that the British wrestlers are lumped in with what is it? It's it's Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands. And yeah, it's the hodgepodge one, and I think there's Africa. Puerto Rico, Africa, Africa. And Africa. <laughs> no. Oh, you want those Simpson brothers with with it from South Africa, or Colonel uh, Colonel De Beers or someone? I know it's it's a weird. It's the hodgepodge category. It's like we don't know what to do with you, so we're going to put you all together. Um, I think Europe, the European scene as a whole, from a historical point of view, you know, going back to the 18th century. Um, 1860s, 1870s onwards, there's there's evidence of of a greater cultural representation of European wrestlers um, from a fame level than there was in the US during the same period. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more candidates, like I alluded to before, coming out from um, a pre-1950s due to some of the good research that some guys are doing. I think Phil Lyons, I think he's one of the major European historians, and he, and he brings up some great figures, even people like uh, Spirius Arion. Um, he, he was a major drawer in Greece. You know, he, he, when he went to Greece, he was drawing 20, 25,000 a time. Um, line him up with other candidates in Europe. They're on the ballot. They weren't drawing that. But he's not going to get in, is he? It's, it's, it's an interesting one. But the, the, the European, I think the European area should be split off from the rest. I think, oh, I don't know what you do with the rest then. It's, it's a tough one. Um, it's just a, it's just a hodgepodge. And I think we're just, we're just stuck with it because I, I don't know if there's a better solution. There has to be a better solution in having Europe. The Pacific Islands and Africa all in the same category. <laughs> I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah, it, it, it is a mess, but I've not heard of a better solution. Um, do, you think, that, do you think the United Kingdom should have its own category? Let me ask you that. I think Europe should. I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say the United Kingdom should. Um, I think there's lots of candidates throughout Europe, once the research is done, that reveal hell of hell of a lot of draws um i think there's a guy i've started looking at recently um he's called francisco pino um 
We wrestled under the hood as uh, Laurent Gay Blanc um, in Europe, in France, um, from the 30s, 40s, I think. Uh, I know it's actually later than that. It's about the 40s into the 60s. It's a huge draw. You know, not many people have heard of him. <clears throat> and they're, they're the people that interest me now. We've not really done them to death. And there's some good research, like I said, being done by people like Phil Lyons, who's a great European historian, that's putting these names out there to, to the likes of me that when I might go on, you know, who've luckily... I've got, I've got, I'm blessed to have a bigger audience than like so Phil, who's a great historian. So I can get those names out there even further, bring them onto shows like this. Who've, you know, Brian, you've got huge reach now. You've done fantastic building, building this show and others over the years. And I think, you know, just getting these names out there, people might go, oh, who's Hulo Orange Blanc? Who's this uh, Francisco Pino? I want to hear a bit more. And those names are out there. So if there's anyone who's interested in some of these under the bubble names that I'm, I'm kind of going through now. Um, shoot me a message on Twitter and I'll give you a list of them as long as my arm and off you go and research them. And I think there's quite a lot of interesting things to be uncovered over the next few years. And that's what's really interesting me moving forward because I am disillusioned, Brian. I'm got to the point where my guys aren't going to get in. My Kerry Von Eriks, my JYDs, my Bull Curry is very similar to you, mate. It's, it's, it's a challenge. So I've got to wet my whistle elsewhere. I've got to dive in elsewhere. And that's the, the, the area I'm going to do it moving forward. Alan, since, since since you have the floor, sorry, Brian. Yeah, go go right ahead, John. Uh, um, what are your feelings on George Kidd? Well, well George Kidd has been very much mentioned over the last. I don't know, a couple of years. I think Dave's been pushing heavily. And I think you've got to realize something about George Kidd and why he's getting a little bit more lip service now. Um, he was Johnny Saints' main trainer. And I think there's a link there. So you've got your Eagles, your Chris Heroes that know this and that, that, that push that. Um, George Kidd as a candidate, I think he's hard to judge given the fact that there's not much TV footage of him out there. Um, I think some guys have done some great work. I think John Lister, um, I know John's a friend of 605. He's been on the show before, Brian. And um, he's done some great research pieces for Fighting Spirit magazine when that magazine was still with us, um, talking the career of uh, George Kidd. Um, I, I, just, I think from a Scottish point of view, I think he was a big draw. I think he's known. I know he's known. Um, half my family's Scottish. I know the level of fame to a degree. Um, I just think that he hung around too long. There's an argument for mm. Big Daddy that he he hung around too long, and well, not an argument. He did. You know, it was maybe because there's no new stars, but the, the style that kid worked, I think, really exposed when he slowed down. I think it really exposed the business, and I think he went from someone that was looked at a high regard to a shell of his former self at the end. And I think that really hurts his candidacy for me. Uh, he's not someone I've considered, but if there's a better argument than what I've put forward for him, I'm glad to, I'll be happy to listen to it, John. Well, no, I'm very I was interested in your take on him because I've heard his name talked about so, so often in the last few years. And I was always curious about your take on him. So thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, no worries. Well, guys, as we begin to wrap things up, let me go to each one of you and ask you what you're looking for next year. Are there any wrestlers of the historical nature that you could see yourself saying to Dave, hey, I think this person deserves inclusion as a historical candidate, similar to Paul Pons or whoever it may be? Is there any specific wrestler that you're looking at next year and saying, I'm absolutely voting for that? You know, one of the big names next year. Okada on the ballot for the first time will more than likely be a first ballot Hall of Famer, even though he's in the midst of his career. But what are you guys looking for next year on the ballot? Any changes? What do you think will be happening? John, let me start with you. Yeah, it's a, Okada's a tricky one. Um, you know, if, if I don't vote for him, I sort of feel like, you know, the, the Derek Jeter holdout uh, 
in the baseball hall of fame, you know, but again, he's in the middle of his career. So. Unless you abstain from voting for Japan and then it's not the yeah. Jer- Derek Jeter situation. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, it's, and I abstain from, from a lot this year. Um, and, but now, now that I have a better feel of what the ballot's going to look like, I'm more prepared to, to do uh, research properly. You know, I, I take these, I take this way too seriously, very, very seriously. It you have to put more into it than just, you know, the cursory Google search and looking at Dave's obituary, because then that's, that's not, that's not research. Um, not for the, the hall of fame. Um, what I, and this is going to sound crazy. And, uh, I, I blame Al Getz for this, um, for making me this crazy. In the, in the baseball hall of fame, there's the introduced by Bill James. There's the, the Keltner list, um, which is a list of, of 15 subjective questions, which one can generally find almost unarguable answers. Uh, and it's, you know, that's used for the baseball hall of fame. So what I want to do for myself to help me in my decisions and my research is to come up with a, a list of questions, perhaps not 15 questions, but a list um, to just help me narrow down my choices. And uh, again, not to bring it to other sports, uh, I heard someone else mention Mike Francesa the other day, and he talks about, I think it was a football hall of fame, where he talks about the room in the room. And it's important to keep that, uh, you know, a lot in your mind when casting your vote. Um, there's a lot of guys who I think are fantastic. Um, like I think about guys like the Mongolian Stomper and Pimpero Furpo. Um, and, you know, and, but, and then I think, do they, do they belong in that, that very small room with the Jim Londos and Luthez? I don't know. Those are the questions I need to ponder for next year. Brian, what do you think? Well, I think we could all agree that we're super jazzed that Nikki Bella is going to be on the ballot next year. I feel <laughs> awful. I feel <laughs> awful for Brie Bella. <laughs> I just, I, I think, and look, I, my thing is, I, I don't know. I, I really believe in the Observer Hall of Fame. I really do. And when I see something like that, I just go like, how? Uh, it, it's hard. To, these Some of these things are hard to defend. And it's, and and it gives ammunition to people who try to take down the Hall of Fame. But but anyway, I, I'm going to try to be positive about this. Here's here's two people that I'm looking at that are going to be added next year that I think, for me personally, would have a very good chance of getting my vote. One would be Bill Dundee, because I think I mean I, I don't even you know I don't everyone knows his qualifications for, even from a Memphis point of view. Just just that one thing alone, and and being involved in what what may be kind of. I don't know. You could sort of make an argument regionally being one of one of, if not the hottest drawing, longest drawing main event feuds from a regional territorial point of view ever uh, with Jerry Lawler. One of the longest running, you know, with the with the Sheik book, it was up there like when I'm talking about Sheik versus Bobo Brazil as potentially the longest running you know, feud in, in, in wrestling history. I think Lawler and Dundee is up there, too. So he'd be somebody that I could potentially see myself voting for. And also the Hollywood Blondes, because, you know, this this reminds me of talking about, you know, the, the whole tag team category where you've got somebody like uh, Raka, let's say, who might go in twice because he's, you know, with, with the tag team and with the singles. And I think in the case of Buddy Roberts, you know, he's a part of two potentially Hall of Fame teams. I, I think he would deserve to go in with the Hollywood Blondes and obviously with the Freebirds where he's already in. 
But those are two names I I could definitely – I'm not going to guarantee I'm voting for them because I really need to kind of sit down and think about who I would want to drop and things like that of people that I've been championing. But but those are the two that really jump out at me as people I would potentially be interested in voting for. And finally, Alan, what are your thoughts on next year's ballot? Well, I'm I'm super excited to start deep diving into Bill Dundee's career. Um, I know we've talked in Memphis, but do we do we also consider his his booking runs in that the career conversation, Brian? If you were going to vote for him, would you be looking at him purely as an in-ring talent? I think no. I I, I think oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't know I, I didn't know what Brian you meant. Sorry. There are two Brian's here, but I'll <laughs> jump at first. But feel free uh, after I'm done, Brian, to say your thought. I think yeah. you have to because I mean there are plenty of people in there who are in there for the entire body of their career bill watts is in there for being a hall of fame wrestler and a hall of fame booker slash promoter there are plenty of other uh examples of that and i think with bill dundee you have a guy that if you're going to look at the positives of his career you're going to say one of the biggest stars in the tennessee territory from the mid-1970s until really the death of the territory eventually in the 1990s drew big houses against jerry lawler legendary feud with jerry lawler him and buddy landell in 86 that's legendary stuff. But beyond that, he was an assistant booker or booker at times in Memphis with Jerry Jarrett when Jerry Lawler wasn't booking. And then Mid-South. What you're talking about with Mid-South is the most successful period of time in the history of a territory in 1984 into early 1985. I think you have to include that, for me at least, because it's not like he's going to be on the ballot a second time as a booker. I would have to include all of that when thinking about him. But Brian, please uh, share your thoughts before we go back to Alan. No, I, I'm pretty much in agreement with that. I, I mean, I think you got to you have to look at the whole picture. And, you know, in some guys cases, looking at the whole picture hurts them. You know, like I think that hurts a JYD where you want to kind of focus on just don't look over there. Don't look over there. Just look at this good stuff. But I think with, with someone like Bill Dundee, I think it benefits them to look. It, it only helps to look at the big picture and and so much that he was a part of and you know, that was important in wrestling history in the ring, outside the ring, you know, and, and of course, his unbelievable work as Sir William alongside Stephen Regal and WCW, <laughs> things like that. Uh, no, but uh, I mean, the whole picture of his career is important. So I do agree. Yeah, and I think the same. It's interesting that, you know, we, you, you'd said there, um, Brian, last that the you wouldn't put him on just as a book on his own, but Kevin Sullivan was. And that's Dave's weird way of looking at things, isn't it? Dave will just decide arbitrarily, I will just put someone on, you know, all of a sudden for, for something outside of his mate, what he's mainly known for. And that's Kevin Sullivan and his WCW booking run, which was, you know, a, a, a you know, an interesting, uh, an interesting run. He wasn't the only man there, but he didn't, they went out of business. Some of that was down to the things that he was involved in as much as anyone else. Um, but yeah, I think I think for me to answer your question, it would be Bill Dundee, who's at who I'm excited for the most for a deep dive. Um, I heard Dave talk about Nikki Bella and how you know Total Divas and how that's brought on a lot of new fans. But as it really, when year on year the ratings are falling anyway, you, you, you made your fans for WWE over fifty still. So there's that argument doesn't hold much water for me. But I know I mentioned. Um, candidate before the other person i want to mention and you guys might laugh you my guys might think this isn't you know shouldn't be a discuss but terrible ted 
should be on the Hall of Fame ballot. The the, the wrestling bear, twenty five year career, headlined all all around the all around the country, all around you know North America. Um, was major draw in um, Toronto, Maple Leaf Gardens. He, he headlined a number of shows there. Headlined in WWF, uh, various places in Northeast. I know we had runs in San Francisco and the Shire uh, and elsewhere, St. Louis, I think as well. He worked um, not under. We know it. No, in fact, it wasn't St. Louis. I'm getting that wrong. But, he, but, his, pro- being, but his promos weren't good. No, no, it's a lot of growling. But then there's a lot of wrestlers in that area who did that as well. So maybe, maybe no. But a 25 year career, he was a draw. So why can't he be in the discussion? Now, would he have to go in with Dave McKigney, though, is the question, or would <laughs> it just right. be the bear? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you've got the handler in here as well. It's, 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 and this it's, goes it's, back it's to the tag team discussion. I mean, you want to talk about one guy carrying another guy. I mean, I don't think it gets any more <laughs> egregious than that. I mean, that damn bear didn't know where the hell he was. You know, <laughs> what would he have done without Dave? Come on now. We got to put Tuffy Truesdale in with the for wrestling the dead alligator next. Oh, God. Yeah, well, all these wrestling creatures as well. It should be another wing. But that's, <laughs> Who uh, drew the house, Jake or Damien? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tilda or Dynamite. I think an animal's wing, I think, is in the offing here. Matilda, you know, Frankie. But, you they know, the problem is, if, and I'm, I can't believe I'm seriously talking about this, but I will. The problem with the animal wing of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame would be that it kind of cuts off at a certain period. And then there's really no more animals after that point. And although Frankie the Bird wasn't a big draw. Frankie the Bird was a big part of the Birdman's act. So it's hard to not think of Frankie. And, you know, you got Frankie against Damien against Matilda. And then you got Terrible Ted, who's like the Enrique Torres on that list. <laughs> it's really hard to, to figure this out. I, I also think you, you'd have a lot of women wrestlers and a lot of little people wrestlers kind of standing there going really really you 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 started an animal category before you before you started a category for us well what do you think the june buyer supporters think about the fact that nikki bella is going to be on the ballot well, let's see yeah. who does better next year june buyers or nikki bella yeah well, i think it's interesting i know who should but let's see and that, that will still be a telltale sign of the, the 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 voters we've got now and the age of those voters uh they may see that total bellas thing as a, as a big thing um compared to us guys that are old and decrepit now one 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 other guy i was looking forward to to, to doing a deep dive on over the next year uh, dory dixon is a guy that's so I find very one. interesting and i'd love to to dive more into his career uh, Which ballot yeah. is Dory Dixon going to be on? Is he going to be a candidate for Mexico or a candidate for the historical performer era? That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's kind of the mm-hmm. Kenny Omega Japan thing. Kenny Omega can get in on the Japanese ballot. He couldn't get in probably on the modern performers in the U.S. or Canada ballot. Could Dory Dixon yeah. get in on the Mexico ballot and not get in from the – he? I guarantee he wouldn't get in from the historical performers ballot just based on the results we've seen, the trajectory that yeah. other important candidates have had. But he's going to be on that ballot from Mexico, I would imagine. And the, the logjam for the Mexican ballot has sort of been cleared slightly the last couple of years. So I, his his chances in Mexico might not be terrible. Yeah, yeah, especially if you if you consider that, like with the Kenny Omega Japan thing that we talked about, that a lot of it might be a little bit strategic on the part of how he's kind of set it up to sort of help people 
have an easier chance of getting in. You know, even the historical marker is a little arbitrary. Like I think I think it's either 85 or 90. That's the cutoff for considering you historical. But his his kind of caveat is not that you didn't wrestle after that period, but that sort of, quote unquote, you know, the most important part of your career was prior to that mm. year. And I think that's that can be ambiguous for some guys. I mean, they're, they're, it's not always clear. You know, I mean, it's clear for like Dusty Rhodes, but it's not clear for everybody. Some people really straddle that line and you can nudge them one way or the other if you want to kind of help them to get in. You know, it's interesting with the modern performers category, it just hit me while you were saying that, Brian. In a way, you can kind of separate guys from that era who was a star when syndicated television was the big deal and who was a star when it was just purely cable television. Yeah, and, and I mean, again, that that might be an argument for having more of that kind of era-based voting where, where it's like, uh, you know, are we voting for the 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 era of national television in the 50s when it was much easier for someone to become a huge star because the whole country was watching them you know uh, there's so many factors we continue our look at the 2020 class of the wrestling observer newsletter hall of fame with two of wrestling's premier historians and authors on the line right now first let me introduce a man who has done so much Started out as a newsletter writer, he of course is the man behind SlamWrestling.net and so many books, including the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame series of books, Greg Oliver. Greg, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me on the show. And also joining us is a man who has done so much to document the history of Quebec and Montreal, so many different books he has been an author of, from Mad Dog Vachon's biography to the most recent one, the story of Andre the Giant, Eighth Wonder of the World. Bertrandy Bear. Bertrand, thanks for being here today. Thank you for the invite. Happy to be here. Well, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts, guys, on the Hall of Fame this year, but why don't we start by talking about your ballots. Greg, I'm going to go to you first. Who did you vote for this year for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Uh, well, I sort of do a process of elimination. As you, you look at the list and you sort of start eliminating people you know you don't like immediately. And I certainly can't ever vote in the Mexican and Japan categories. It's just I have no expertise. Um, but I do know a lot more about Australia, uh, especially because I've you know interviewed Jim Barnett and some of those people over the years. Uh, in, or, in no particular order, uh, historical era performers, I had June Byers, Cowboy Bob Ellis, who is hugely underrated, Pompero Furpo, can you give me an oh yeah, uh, Sputnik Monroe, who is bigger than wrestling. He's the only one on this list I will say that about. Uh, Blackjack Mulligan and uh, Johnny Walker, uh, Mr. Wrestling 2. I had Sergeant Slaughter and Kerry Von Erich. And uh, in Europe, Australia, New Zealand category, I had Dominic Danucci and Jackie Palo. And the non-wrestlers, always a fun category. It's a big catch-all. Uh, Jim Crockett Jr., uh, he tried to go national, um, you know, and deserves a lot of credit. Jim Melby, uh, who's a mentor. Stanley Weston, who we all read the magazines, and the Grand Wizard. But it's unfair just to say the Grand Wizard. Of course, he was so many other different people in different places. And uh, I think he's hugely underrated. So there there you go. And he did a lot behind the scenes, too. It's not even just the on-camera role, but Ernie Roth, he did just about everything in wrestling. And there's the pioneering gay guy in wrestling behind the scenes and all that, too. So, you know, we need to try to recognize some of those things. Bertrand, let me go to you. Who did you vote for this year for the Hall of Fame? 
Well, after uh, Bob Armstrong passed away, I, I learned quite a few more things that I didn't know about. And often enough, I think, you know, the, those people who passed away, I mean, they sometimes it's their last shot at the Hall of Fame. And considering all I learned about all Bob was and, you know, because I, I learned about him more in Spooky Mountain, uh, that and, you know, that was the tail end of his career. But uh, that I thought that was an interesting candidate and that if there was a chance for Bob, that that was this year. And uh, considering all I've learned, I think it was a, a very uh, apropos choice. Uh, Johnny Rougeau, uh, we have to uh, talk about Johnny Rougeau. I mean, here locally, I mean... There, there, there hasn't been anyone as big as Johnny Rougeau, um, except for Yvon Robert. I mean, he put the whole family on the map, basically, of the Rougeau family, which a lot of the younger audience are more familiar with. But also, he was a businessman, owner. Uh, he helped started the hockey league, the junior hockey league in, in, in Quebec. Uh, he's part of their Hall of Fame. Um, and, you know, he he was a politician. He was very involved with René Lévesque. So he, he, his influence and his name is go much bigger than, than wrestling. And although he was one of the biggest draw in the history of the, the territory as well. So, I mean, that's an historical candidate that deserves a little bit more of uh, limelight. Uh, so that that's someone that uh, I like to keep in there um i i believe i mean another another guy from montreal i mean i believe rick martel has been an overlooked candidate in a lot of uh, all of fame i mean considering uh, the, the the last great awa run the tag team run and obviously the model run i mean he has left uh quite the mark uh on, on the business and he's you know, uh, the, he deserves a little bit more uh, acknowledgement, I believe. So, uh, Sergeant Slaughter, uh, I mean, I, I cannot believe that he's still not getting in <laughs> at this point. Um, I believe also, I mean, Bill Goldberg had, should be reconsidered. I mean, it, it is like the opposite of uh, Omega. I mean, it's not the work, it's everything else. And, and he was so important and important to this day as a very uh, important candidate in wrestling history. So I believe it, it, it should be reconsidered. Uh, Trish Stratus has basically full locker rooms of women today that were inspired by her work. Uh, so, I mean, that investment in time i mean she basically has created the crops of women that we're watching today uh so i think that's a candidate that deserve a little bit more uh limelight <laughs> once again or spotlight uh i had ayabusa in japan i mean that's one category with the mexican that I, i'm clearly trying to i'm trying to i'm the time period where i was huge on Mexican wrestling and Japanese wrestling is passing me by and I'm going to have to to reconsider my my voting in, in those two categories as uh, candidates disappear and appear and, and um, much more older candidate. I, I believe that less and less that my knowledge is relevant as far as the Japanese wrestling and uh, Mexican. I had Caristico uh, for uh, Mexico uh, and the, the fact the two candidates that went through, that actually makes me think that uh, 
maybe my t- my time has passed me by for the Mexican and the Japanese wrestling. Uh, for uh, the international, I had Dominic Dinucci, obviously, uh, another Montreal great. And I had the rollerball Mark Rocco, which I believe, you know, considering how his style has evolved into the British wrestling of today with the, the mix with the Japanese and all that. I think that's a forgotten candidate. And the fact that he passed away this year has brought back a lot of articles and details on his career. And I felt that maybe the year should have been this year. Um, and the non-wrestler, I mean, I, you know, I'm big. I mean, on Don Owen, I cannot believe he's still not getting in. I'm like Jim Valley on this. Um, and also I had Stanley Weston, the, the magazines clearly, they were so vital to the crossover between territories and, and making you believe as fans back in those days, uh, they, they are vital to the business history. Uh, I had Grand Wizard as well. So Greg, we're, we talked alike on this and I had Dave Brown from Memphis. And I mean, I, I felt in the last year that uh, Tony Schiavone has uh, come back into the spotlight and, you know, it kind of reminded everyone that he had a big run uh, with Crockett and WCW and he was the voice of Nitro uh, in the A-Day. And, you know, he should be reconsidered as uh, one of those uh, voice that, and, you know, you can see on his work that he he's somebody that even though he, he went away for a while, he's a, he's a, he was a major player in his role. Well, guys, let's talk about Kenny Omega a little bit, because obviously that's the most controversial wrestler to get into the Hall of Fame this year. He wasn't on my ballot and he was on neither of your ballots. And I guess the question is, what do you think about Kenny Omega getting elected to the Hall of Fame? But also, what are your philosophies about a wrestler? in the midst of their career, getting into the Hall of Fame, someone who you would think still has several years left, I would think that he primarily got elected based on his run in New Japan over a few years, including the matches that Dave Meltzer, who's the patron saint of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, gave the five-star breaking ratings to, you know, got up to seven stars, I believe. So the question is, How do we evaluate someone in the middle of their career? And, you know, I think to uh, point out a couple of the people you just mentioned, Bertrand, you know, if we're saying that for a few years in New Japan, the quality of his work got him in, then what do we say about someone like Bill Goldberg, who for a few years became a crossover wrestling star? To this day, people know who Bill Goldberg is. And what do we say about someone like Caristico, the former Mystico, who, you know, if he was on the ballot in 2009... Maybe we look at him a little bit differently because he had that incredible hot period, that boom period in Mexico, but it's everything that happened after that. Although he's still a big star in Mexico, that WWF run kind of taints the way people see him. So, I mean, Omega, I would almost compare Omega getting in now or being on the ballot now to being if Caristico had been on the ballot in 2009, there's still a lot to play out. So uh, let me go to you first, Bertrand. What are your thoughts about Kenny Omega this year? Well, I mean, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I mean, my my view on Omega was like, not this year. I mean, it especially with the year, the off for the cold year he had with AEW, it makes you wonder if he can uh, be that same Omega with the, the WWE, the, the wrestling audience of North America. Can, can he be that big of a star? Can, can the match make that big of a difference? And... and 
the time period where he was hot and having those great matches or whatever you want to call it, depending on your opinion, it, is this really enough to make it like put him on the ballot and, and, and have him as the winner? That seems to me a little bit uh, too fast because, you know, he, he can, you know, I don't want to be negative, but, you know, if we take like a guy like Magnum TA, who was very hot for, for a very short period of time, you, you know, he, he seemed like a sure guy that would have gone all the way, but, you know, something tragic happened and everything changed and, and uh, he's not remembering exactly the same fashion as you expecting him to be remembered. So I think it's a little bit early to go the, the Omega route, especially if we have all those candidates are, uh, out there. I, I don't think it was a, a no-brainer. I don't think it was like The Rock or, or somebody like that. At, at this point in time it makes you wonder if maybe the age uh should be different the 35 years maybe it should be 45 i've read that somewhere uh you know that's something that should be discussed at, at this point because i think it, it in the case of omega it made him a candidate when i think we needed a little bit more perspective before putting him in the hall of fame well, let's talk a little bit more about that. Greg, let me turn it over to you. Your general thoughts about Kenny Omega getting in and the idea that should a wrestler who is so young and still in the middle of their career, should he get in? I mean, I've seen some people argue that he's already done enough based on what he did in New Japan for a few years. That's enough for him to be elected in. I don't necessarily agree with that philosophy, but I've seen it argued. and I know some people who vote on this definitely believe that. What are your thoughts about this, and what are your thoughts about the process of dealing with an active wrestler? Well, the active wrestler one is easy to address because in each of our Hall of Fame books, the Canadians right through, we when we ranked people, if you were an active wrestler, you were not a candidate. So you couldn't have been on that list. So um, when I look at my Canadians book that I got all the guff over um, with ranking a Bret Hart, well, you know, he was in there, but we left out Benoit, we left out Jericho, we left out Edge, like all these guys that were still active at the time, that when you reseed them today, um, would definitely be in the consideration. And so Brett might be further down the list. I mean, I'd have to think about it. But I mean, it was the same with, with heels and, and tag teams and all that kind of stuff. I, mean, I saw some ludicrous thing today where somebody said that the Young Bucks were the greatest tag team of all time. It's like, okay. Go back to whatever bull you're smoking there, pal, because they don't even belong in the discussion. Uh, and I think Kenny's a little bit like that in that uh, he did a lot of great stuff in Japan, sure, but none of it's translated here. And again, he's too young. What else is he going to accomplish? He may go back to New Japan in two years when AEW doesn't need him for a while or something. And then he, I don't know, he shits the bed. I don't know what could happen, right? It could be a terrible matches and it, and it sullies his career. So I think at 35, that is probably too early to start inducting guys into Hall of Fame, unless their career is truly absolutely 100% done by injury. And and Bertrand brought up, you know, Magnum TA, and and I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, but doesn't mean he didn't contribute. And they they honored him in Iowa at the Hall of Fame there with, uh, I can't remember which one it was, the Gotch Award maybe, or the Luthaz Award. Um, So there's ways to honor these guys that aren't Hall of Fame. Uh, and still made a major contribution. So I, I don't think Kenny belongs, but, you know, that's me. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between trajectory and accomplishment. You know, Magnum TA was on that trajectory where you could see if things play out a certain way over the next four or five years, this guy will be a Hall of Famer, this guy will be an all-time legend. You know, things obviously happened in a different way. 
Greg, to the topic of voting, now you've been involved with other Halls of Fame. I mean, you put out the Wrestling Hall of Fame series of books. What is the voting process for the actual Halls of Fame? Because, you know, we have the Observer Hall of Fame. There's the Wrestling Hall of Fame. There's the Iowa Hall of Fame. There's the WWE Hall of Fame. All different Halls of Fames. I think there's another one opening up in upstate New York now. All have a different process. What have you been involved with so far? Uh, well, long story short is that uh, WWE, obviously, they pick who they want, and it's often marketing related, and we understand that, and I don't think anybody denies it. It doesn't mean that those guys that get inducted don't appreciate the hell out of it, because they do. It's a major, major thing, and the media makes such a big deal out of it, uh, and rightfully so. Um, but it is, you know, they're running the promotion, they're running the whole Hall of Fame, so they can do whatever they want. Um the Iowa one's really neat because back when it started, I mean, you could, they had a secret sort of meeting with all the members who were there uh, during the weekend. And so they'd all sort of have this little cabal and go off and, and debate it. And so the historians like a Jim Melby and whoever it was would be, you know, bringing in their information to present, like basically making their case why this guy belonged in the Hall of Fame. Uh, so that was always really neat, but it was not something that was open up to historians other than to, you know, maybe make suggestions for down the road. And I, I've certainly done that over the years. Um, but then the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame was the one that tried to do it the most legit. And that's all on Tony Villano, who had also been on the Boxing Hall of Fame uh, board. So he knew how he wanted to make it work. He knew how you had to have both historians and current members. It's a lot like Meltzer's Hall of Fame, you know, the kind of people that vote. Uh, so they would send out the ballots. Uh, they would rotate them every year. They'd have different people making the selection committee, like being the selection committee every year. And I was on that one year. And um, so you send it out to the 40 different people or whatever the number was or whatever the number is now. Uh, and you, you do the same thing you're doing here with Meltzer. There's different categories and you choose them there. Um, you know, there was always questionable people. Dr. Bob Bryla loved Dr. D. David Schultz, and he was on the board and so, and often was involved in the uh, selection committee. So, you know, David Schultz got on the Hall of Fame ballot a number of times, and it just puzzled me because he in no way had a Hall of Fame career. He's a Hall of Fame name because for the wrong reasons. So, you know, th those kind of things creep in in the other ones because there's political agendas. And that goes back then to, you know, um, Meltzer and his love of AEW and and Kenny Omega. And it's like, it almost feels like it's stacked. I know it isn't. I'm not accusing Dave of anything here, but the perception is certainly probably pretty easy to point to A, B, and C and say, oh, well, that's why Kenny's in because, you know, Meltzer must be on AEW's payroll because Cornette says so. Well, I think you kind of touched on something I want to talk about. The idea, you know, Kenny Omega's on the ballot and we're going to have a lot of other younger wrestlers on the ballot in the next few years. Okada comes on the ballot next year. Ibushi's on the ballot. You brought up the Young Bucks. The Young Bucks, it's not that far away. They'll be on the ballot, too. How do we weigh that? How do we weigh them and even WWE guys? Randy Orton's on the ballot. Edge is on the ballot. How do we weigh that against serious historical figures who have been on the ballot for a long time and haven't gotten the support? Or sometimes they're not even on the ballot. You know, I've, like I've said many times on this show so far, I've been a big champion of Roy Welch and of Mara Siegel who were longtime successful promoters when, you know, it wasn't easy to be a, a successful promoter for 50 years, but these guys did it with, you know, Roy Welch had a massive territory, and uh, there really is no representation of 
the Fuller or Welch family in the Hall of Fame, which when you really think about it, is kind of crazy. And we have these figures and we've all voted on figures. I just heard everyone's ballot. We've all voted on guys who, you know, when I close my eyes and I think about it, I go, yeah, this person's a no-brainer. This is a Hall of Famer. Sergeant Slaughter, Hall of Famer. Johnny Rougeau, who I voted for, Hall of Famer. And, uh, you know, let me turn this over to you, Bertrand, on that note. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the idea that there is a bunch of guys who are younger, a bunch of guys from a different generation, a bunch of guys who are being voted on by wrestlers who worked with them, who know them, who may be friends with them, and then there are serious historical figures that one could argue it was an oversight, them not being in that first class. What do you think about that process and that idea, Bertrand, and also specifically Johnny Rougeau? Should Johnny Rougeau have been in that first class, seeing what that first class of the Hall of Fame was, did Johnny Rougeau belong in there? I mean, no doubt that he belonged in, in that first class when he, when he did the, 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 the pick. I mean, he was an overlook as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and and I, th- I think my personal rule is always that if the guy is fully active, with very rare exception, I mean, I, I just, this, this, discard them as a as a possible candidate because i want to concentrate myself uh, on candidates that truly have uh, deserve at least a better spotlight or to be reconsidered on them because you know there's always going to be time to discuss randy orton in 10 years or edge in 15 or whatever you know uh when there's a little bit more perspective on the situation. And I think that's the main issue with all those guys that are still active. And, and I know that the age thing in wrestling, I mean, it's just keeps on going and going, you know, people over 50 now are still having great career and great matches. So where's the line where, you know, they've been at it long enough and they're old enough that, you know, even if they still participate, you can consider their whole career and, and, and make a judgment. I don't know. I don't. I didn't make that deep of a analysis on it, but that's something to, to talk about, to think about at this point. I mean, should like 45 or even 50 be the age? You know, if you reach 50, uh, you know, and that, that I think even if you're still active, I think, you should at least have a 10, 15 years career behind you minimum. So I, from there, we can try to see what's going on. But at 35, with a couple of years in Japan where he was extremely odd, I I think that we go back to that example. I mean, you know, in 10 years, we may look at this and say, well, that was crazy. Or we may say we were, it was right on. But without the perspective on, on, on Omega's career, it's kind of hard to uh, believe that that was the, the, the right choice. I, I was surprised the way the voting went on this. Can, can I just bring up other sports halls of fame? Because yeah, uh, we had this debate last weekend with, uh, with uh, I'm a, I belong to Hockey Historians Group. And we had an online, you know, big meet and greet last weekend and, and presentations and this and that. And the Hall of Fame comes up. And the Hockey Hall of Fame has traditionally ignored the World Hockey Association, which means it's looked down upon that it was a secondary league. And yet there's guys whose stats are just as great as many people in the Hockey Hall of Fame. The problem is the Hockey Hall of Fame itself doesn't have a veterans committee, right? In baseball, they just, you know, what was it? Harold Baines was, was that two years ago, three years ago now, yeah. um, got elected by their veterans committee. 
And that's an excellent example of somebody that's overlooked that people don't really look at as a Hall of Famer. But when you do all the metrics that, you know, he belongs. But that's not going to convince, as you said, the younger and younger voters that, you know, we need to get this older guy on. Enrique Torres, those kind of people are going to be even more and more less likely to get in uh, through the years because even the historians will be younger. So we need to sort of look at maybe a veteran's category or veterans historians voting block. I don't know exactly how it'll work, um, but I think that's really important because uh, it, it, guys just keep getting pushed further and further down the list. And the Hockey Hall of Fame is a brutal example of that. Like I, I, one year I helped try to get Ron Ellis, you know, considered and did up the whole package, you know, everything they need and all the people vouching for them and all that kind of stuff. And you submit it and then you hear nothing. And you know the chance was good that year because there weren't a lot of big names coming in. Well, you know, next year the the Sedin twins are going to be on the ballot and this and that. So it's the same as we're talking in wrestling. We got other big names coming in that you know are going to take away from the votes of the older people. Um, so I don't know how Dave especially can address that, but I think it needs to be addressed. Well, let's address another issue. And, you know, as we're talking about so many guys, you know, from the current era, really from the this current generation it's a worldwide it's a different business than it used to be obviously in the territory days you had guys who worked various territories and were major stars and you had guys who really worked one or two territories and were major stars and i think that there needs to be a bigger discussion about how do we manage that how do we deal with that and, and something i've said earlier in the show and it hit me when i did my pampero furpo special and i applied this when i voted for johnny rougeau and I applied this when I voted for Bob Armstrong as an example, and Ole Anderson too, is I said, and I hate to use Mount Rushmore as the example, but I said, let's say each territory has a Mount Rushmore. Who are the four biggest stars in the history of the territory? With Furpo, he's clearly on the Mount Rushmore for Hawaii. He's on the Mount Rushmore for Detroit, according to the Detroit historians I talked to. He certainly is someone who had crossover appeal. I mean, kids on playgrounds everywhere were copying his way of speaking. And I say, yeah, he wasn't, you know, the world champion anywhere. But in various regions of the country, if you ask someone to name a wrestler, he may be one of the first people they name. In Hawaii, they still talk about the missing link all these years later. And I look at that with Bob Armstrong. Bob Armstrong, there are very few people that were ever bigger than he was in Pensacola, in Alabama, in that region. Johnny Rougeau, same thing. Johnny Rougeau, there are very few people. I mean, you said it, Yvonne Robert. There are very few people who were ever as big culturally and involved with professional wrestling as he was. How do we deal with that? How do we balance guys who were massive in an area, but not a bunch of areas, or not for one of the major territories? And how do we... You know, it's it's hard, like Bill Dundee's on the ballot next year. I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. I'm not even going to talk about Bill Dundee the booker, but Bill Dundee the wrestler, he's one of the top guys for the Tennessee Territory for a generation, from 75 to 95, let's say. Big houses, big feuds with Lawler. Is that enough? Or is it because it's just Memphis and just the Memphis Territory? I shouldn't even say just Memphis. Is just that territory, is that enough? Greg, what are your thoughts about how we look at territory stars and how do we equate their success with whether or not they should be elected into the hall of fame 
Yeah, it is tough, isn't it? Because, I mean, Rougeau is a great example of somebody who was a massive star, but nobody would know him beyond the driving distance, right? He sort of worked down to Detroit and, and in Buffalo and in, you know, Toronto, but really nowhere else. And and that's obviously going to be a knock against him, but it doesn't mean he wasn't a huge star there. Um, it, it's really tough to, to and, and same thing with a promoter, right? I mean, Don Owen, did he really mean a lot internationally? No, but he got a lot of respect. You know, he just didn't have a big money territory. But how do you compare him to a Vince McMahon or a Jim Crockett? You can't. They're, it's apples and oranges. And so that's what happens with these territorial guys is that um, they sort of get left behind a little bit. And it, it's, it's, what is it? The Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame has a territorial area, area, territorial era category. That's what I was trying to say. Um, and I think that helps uh, address that a little bit, right? Because a national star is somebody completely different, right? Goldberg never worked the territories. You know, Dundee is, would never make it in the big time. I mean, his his failed attempts at, at WCW or whatever, we sort of just look at and, and as it's a footnote in history. Um, so I think maybe that's the way to de- deal with it a little bit more is to break it down yet again. I, I was just advocating that about a, a historical veterans committee. Well, now there's maybe a way to break it down on territory because the national era so overpowers everything from the past and always will. Right. Everything from 84 on now will be remembered by fans way more than anything on on these small circuits. Bertrand, let me ask you the same question. And again, relating to how you and I both voted, we both voted for Bob Armstrong. And I know a lot of guys get that bump after they pass away and Dave does a bio. And with Bob Armstrong, it caused me, not necessarily the bio, because I knew a lot of his history already, but it caused me to sit down and think about his history and say, man, this guy is a top five star all time for Alabama, like I said, Pensacola, Tennessee. Big, big star. And of course, later on, he became the commissioner in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and it worked for a reason. Big star in Georgia. Uh, Big star at two different points in Georgia when he was younger. And of course, when he introduced his son Brad onto the scene on national TV with Piper in 82, wrestled in Florida, got a big push. So, I mean, how do we look at someone like that who I didn't name Madison Square Garden? I didn't say the Montreal Forum. I didn't say the Cow Palace. I talked about southern towns how do we look at that and i guess also another question i'll throw at you here do you think there may be a bias against southern wrestling history at all with the way the hall of fame has been put together so far well i don't know if it's a bias but clearly all of those original guy uh, as greg has said will be pushed down and pushed down the more new guys are put on the list because the national era or national wrestlers or international superstars wherever you want to call them obviously i mean they they they, they represent something that those local guy can never you know match as far as uh, drawing or money or, or anything of that nature but that doesn't mean that in that era that they were not as big of a star uh, as some of those guys uh, that that's where uh, kenny omega getting in so quickly and so easily i mean it's kind of for uh, all of fame you want a historical perspective and, and those territory we need to go and 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 be historical and go deeper and see the perspective of that specific territory i mean they did have an impact i mean the don owen thing i mean 
Don Owen was the promoter that gave a lot of break to a lot of talent that became huge star afterwards. And they all, at some point or another, credited Owen uh, and and said how much they loved working for him and, and how, how much of an impact he had on them. So, I mean, that that's something that that goes beyond the size of the territory or how much money it made it is the long lasting influence in on the business i mean you have to to take that into consideration and i feel sometimes that you know if the guy was not a top worker in, in the sense of the, a kenny omega work if you will the more and more it become it it disqualifies them as a potential candidate for the observer hall of fame you know so that that's an issue uh, because you know it's one of the cr criteria but it's not the only one uh and you know it should be a, a good combination of the four or at least three out of four that goes like beyond normal uh you know so it's like there, there is something there. It needs to be rethinked because as we're going to get more new guys in, I mean, the people who are going to start voting are going to be less and less in tune with, with history. The same way I feel that the more candidates from Japan and uh, Mexico that there is, I mean, most of the guys that I grew up with or that I really followed are, are in already. So we're going into a different uh places with those candidates where i don't have the knowledge or the time to to really study the situation anymore uh and, and that's going to be the situation in the u.s i mean the brian pillman thing is is a good example i mean oh i knew him i liked him so let, let's vote for him that's that's not maybe the best way to select your all of fame ballot isn't it just like you sort of brought up there bert Toronto? it's it's the militarization of the business and it, it coincided with the expansion in the 80s, you know, when all of a sudden work rate and the star ratings and all that stuff meant more and more and more. And then when the Internet came along and every Tom, Dick and Harry could have an opinion and started doing the stars and, and their ratings and stuff like that, that became more important than drawing power, that became more important than personality, that became more important than the, the ability to be a bigger than wrestling. Right. And when I look at my list, a lot of those guys are like that. You mentioned Furpo. That's a great example. Right. He means so much in Hawaii. Sputnik up and row, you know, changed the, the way, you know, audiences came to shows in general, in all of music and all of wrestling down in Memphis. Tell me that's not more important than, you know, what Kenny Omega has contributed to pro wrestling. It, it, they're, they're not even in the same realm. Right. Sputnik up and row is a legend that made a difference in the world. Kenny Omega put on fancy matches and patted himself on the back. But I like the guy. <laughs> He's a really good guy. He's a good Canadian guy, so I'm going to be a good Canadian guy too. Well, he wasn't on the Canadian ballot, though. He was on the Japanese wrestling ballot, so it's important to note that there. But I yeah. think that's important, and that's something I've always thought about and always talked about, is I believe cultural impact, I believe maximum impact matters. And I've been one that has been willing to look away from longevity, because I think if you've made a significant maximum impact for a period of time that needs to be looked at i've always been an advocate for the junkyard dog junkyard dog was never kenny omega in the ring there will be no confusion on that however junkyard dog put a territory on the map 
Junkyard Dog all of a sudden out of nowhere. You know, you know what everyone in wrestling was saying in August of 1980? Who? Who drew that house in the Superdome? The Junkyard Dog and Michael Hayes? Who were they? And it transcended wrestling. You know, I've spoken to people from New Orleans. It transcended wrestling. Sergeant Slaughter, when I was a kid, people outside of wrestling fans knew who he was. He was on G.I. Joe. And we could talk about how good he was in the ring. I mean, there's a different case where you could talk about a guy who, from 1980 to 1984, was really good in the ring. He had some all-time classic matches. He had some all-time classic feuds. He drew some big houses everywhere he went. Not even some. He drew big houses in Mid-Atlantic and in the WWF. And then he had a second arc of his career where G.I. Joe was more the focus. And yes, he was a big star in the AWA. And yes, he went back to the WWF and he had, you know, the Iraqi sympathizer angle. And then after that, his career kind of came to a to a close. But he had that five-year period where in the ring he was great. And then he had an even longer period where he was known to a wider audience. And I think with Sputnik, again, when you talk about Sputnik's candidacy, you're talking about a guy who did a lot of things in a lot of places, a guy who was a star in Texas, a guy who wrestled you know, in various different territories, a guy who was in tag teams. But really what you're saying is it's 1959 in Memphis. And that's where I talk about the idea that it's a worldwide Hall of Fame, but in a sense, we need to maybe dial it back a little bit and make it a little more localized and say, you know, this guy did this significant thing in Tennessee. And although that's not a bigger state, and although that's not worldwide, and it's not in Japan, that matters. That matters as much as going in the ring and having a five-star match, because there were no five-star matches in the 70s, and there were no five-star matches in the 60s and the 50s. It didn't exist. I think you're right, Like, but I don't know how Dave gets there. He set the standard already for what he wants his Hall of Fame to be, and it works, and here we are debating it you know, on, on a podcast and you got all these other people debating it. So obviously he's doing something right with this hall of fame. It's held up as the standard of all the hall of fames that are out there in pro wrestling. So kudos to Dave. It's not perfect, but uh, you know, it's, it's, he's doing his best and hopefully he takes some of these things into consideration. Uh, again, maybe it's a territorial breakout or there's another way to honor people. Uh, I, again, it's like you have the Frank Gotch Award or you have the New York State Award in in um, uh, at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame when they had the, the Hall of Fame there. And, you know, I still remember, you know, people getting that and they thought it was the equivalent to getting into the Hall of Fame when it really isn't. But to them, it was. I mean, clearly, I mean, you're, you are right on this. I mean, it needs something because clearly because of the way the new crop of talent is pushing down on that era, well, we you need to balance somehow. To the point you raised earlier, Greg, about the Young Bucks and how there are certainly a lot of modern fans who may or may not have an awareness of wrestling history who will proclaim the Young Bucks as the greatest tag team of all time. I think... I believe they're the greatest tag team of all time in terms of how they've done with Dave's star ratings. And maybe that is something you need to consider when it's Dave's Hall of Fame. But beyond that, you know, there are various tag teams that have gotten in. The Rock and Roll Express, the Midnight Express, the Road Warriors. There are various different ones. But do you think there should be a tag team category so we could actually evaluate some of the other tag teams? You know, like the Von Brauners have been on the list, and you can 
put them on the list of other guys that I just said who were major stars in multiple territories in the South for years. For years. They drew money for years. And they don't get much support. I supported Rick and Scott Steiner. And I think I can apply the Omega precedent to, to them now that I think about it because for four or five years, they were dynamic in the ring. They were fantastic in the ring. And I think they were arguably the best tag team for a five-year period in professional wrestling. So that needs to be looked at. Bertrand, let me go to you with the tag team question first. And specifically, next year on the ballot, the Hollywood Blondes, who of course had a major impact in Montreal. What do you think about the idea? Should we look at tag teams? Should it be a separate category to evaluate tag teams? And secondly, what are your thoughts about the Hollywood Blondes being on the ballot? Well, I mean, I can already spoil you that they're they're probably going to make my ballot uh, as far as back originally they had here, and, and the fact that it became an inspiration for so many for so many with that gimmick later on. But the the thing with tag team, I think you're you're hitting another nail there. I mean, the more we're going to go, the tag team of the past are going to be an even it's going to be even worse than for the single stars as tag team has not been what it used to, no matter what AEW does, it's not going to be the way it used to be. Uh, so obviously tag team wrestling is kind of a side dish now. So obviously the tag team of the past are uh, neglected and they should be considered into their own category. I mean, we're like the t- territories to try to, 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 get some of those teams that have been lost and forgotten and put aside um that that is something that uh needs to be considered uh, obviously because the, the the fact i mean i saw that article go by too as well about the young bucks being the best of, of all time it, it just like blew my mind uh, uh that you could even put them in the conversation as greg said so and, and from there um, um, it's going to be just like for the single stars, they're going to be push and push. And at some point they're just going to be out of the ballot and there's not going to be any bringing them back or uh, getting them their just due. So yes, uh, obviously we need to, to, that's one of the things that needs to be talked about and discussed. Uh, I mean, Dave did a great job in putting that, this together at a time where, there was not really any type of seriousness in any of the wrestling hall of fame. Um, and, and, and he, he tried to make it hard and tried to copy rules, but I mean, at the same time it, it is wrestling and, and you know, that, that necessitate to some, some sort of a reevaluation of how things are today compared of what they were when he put this together originally. And Greg, let me turn it over to you, but also let me just throw this question out there for when you're done. Antonina Rock is in the Hall of Fame. Should Rocca and Perez be in as a separate entity? But go ahead, Greg. But but that's exactly it. I mean, we we can go back through all the great tag teams of the past and create a category for them, but we're going to end up like the midgets category at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame where they ran out of midgets, right? There's only so many that you can really honor that are Hall of Fame level. And so they did, you know, their six or seven or whatever it was. And then it's like, well, let's retire this category. And as Bert just said, it's like tag teams don't exist today. And, you know, they, 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 they exist only to have a feud down the road. And 
So, you know, in another 10 years, that tag team category almost has to be retired because there won't be any new tag teams being entered, um, or at least not anything equivalent. We might say they're a tag team, but it, they aren't. So I don't know if a tag team category is the answer, but certainly in the short term, it may help us get some of those Von Brauner type, you know, uh, tag teams in there. Um, but yeah, for sure. I, I think that, you know, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens are among the greatest tag teams of all time. And they ended up very high on our list simply because everybody raved about them. And like they were probably in our in our wheelhouse. We thought about them, but we didn't have them as high as we did. I think they're the third greatest team of all time or the fourth. And that's because the respect of the peers mean everything. And so they, but they were also great singles wrestlers. I mean, Ray Stevens, you know, ran San Francisco for years. Like he was the top guy. So he belongs in there twice in, in my book. And some guys, maybe three times. You, you just don't know, right? I mean, Bill Eady is a great example. Mass Superstar is a Hall of Famer. And Demolition is a Hall of Fame tag team, you know? And then what else are you going to say about them, right? Those are just two great gimmicks. There's other guys that had three or four different runs and made, well, Buddy Rogers or sorry, Buddy Roberts, we just talked about with the Hollywood Blondes. I mean, he was great in the Freebirds. He was great in the Hollywood Blondes. He did great at whatever he needed to do, but nobody would ever look at him as a single star and go, he's a Hall of Famer. He was a role player on a team and made awesome, awesome wrestling. You know, we, and, and he was hilarious to talk to. I really do miss that guy. He'd call out of the blue just to chat. So you can't say that about a lot of guys today. Greg, this is obviously a business that historically has been filled with outlaws and gypsies and all sorts of criminals and people would do. I thought you were going to think share there. <laughs> Come on, do some share for me. And people with various dubious um, characteristics. You know, there are always the exceptions, but it's a business of outlaws. How do you think we should weigh outside of the ring issues when voting for someone or when not voting for someone? When we think about someone who, you know, has committed crimes, someone who has done awful things, should we consider that when voting for them for a wrestling hall of fame? Uh, it should be on your mind, but it can't be the make or break, right? I mean, people make mistakes and, and that's a given, right? Uh, and you have to be able to forgive. I mean, it's different, obviously, with a murder than compared to, you know, counterfeiting money like uh, Blackjack got sent to prison for. So those are different kind of crimes. And, and I think just as human beings, you can accept them differently. Um, but yeah, they, they need to be a factor, but I don't think they should eliminate anybody. There's a lot of crooks that are in, you know, the major sports hall of fames, right? When you look at the owners and how they cheated players and the racism and all that kind of stuff, right? It's, it's, those are some terrible people that are in the hall of fame, but I don't think they're going to take them out. So with wrestling, I think you get a little more leeway, exactly as you said, because it is such a uh, business of scoundrels and it's only getting weirder, you know, with the current battles over, you know, maybe unionization or something like that with, you know, you can't walk the line and be an individ individual and an independent contractor. And yet you tell me what to do. Whereas wrestling, the guys did the did it because they were independent contractors. They could go wherever they wanted to go. They could go to the next territory, you know, and leave behind that uh, statutory rape charge or whatever it was that they left behind in the other territory. It's a, it's a pretty creepy business um, when you look at some of these guys. So you're right. I, I don't think Bruiser Bob Sweetan's ever getting in the hall of fame, but, uh, but a blackjack mulligan, it's a different crime, right? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know, you have to, everyone has their own, 
code, I guess, and you kind of have to apply that to someone you vote for. You know, murder, obviously, I think would be a disqualifying factor. Rape, I think, would be a disqualifying factor. Uh, Bertrand, let me turn it over to you because you and Greg both voted for Dominic Danucci, and I'm curious for you guys to explain why you think Danucci is a Hall of Famer and where do you think the Hall of Fame candidacy comes from? Do you think it's from the United States? Do you think it's from Australia? What are your thoughts on Dominic Danucci? Greg, feel free to jump in after Bertrand says his piece. I mean, clearly the Australia run, I mean, makes it, it's what puts push him over the top. That's the category he's in. Uh, he, he was a big star here, uh, but he was never the big star as there was so many more. Uh, he, he was always a supporting character in the crew of Italians. Um, but that run in Australia puts him over the top. Uh, his training work uh, as well uh, also adds to the whole uh, package of Dominic Danucci. And I believe, you know, that it is somebody that deserved that, that, that spotlight. He, he was there for a long period of time and, and he, his influence on the business has been just positive. If we want to speak about, you know, scoundrel versus uh, good good people he, he would be you know i think one of the good ones um so that 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 that's that's my take as far as, as the nucci uh, and like a lot of the people on my list uh sometimes you know you you have to hang on to those people to until you know they get discovered or like that historical piece gets uh put on or that interview or or in the case of some of them i mean some pass away and suddenly you know all that history gets thrown at you and you're like wow how come we've uh, not thinking about this this person or this tag team or it just doesn't make any sense if you you start looking at, at the, the the historical importance and everything they've done in, in, in a business where often enough you know two or three years are sometimes considered a lifetime or, or at least good enough to, to get you in the hall of fame in modern time. Uh, those people, I mean, they, they had tremendous career going from places to places, starting over and getting over again, uh, in different places at different level. Yes. But still, uh, I think, you know, that's one of the, most beautiful thing in, in in the business you know the fact that they would move from territory to territory and that they would start over and get over all over again in a different way sometimes in a different role and, and, and still have that impact so you know i i think we need to think about uh, those guys and, and and maybe one of the way would be to 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 uh, give a little bit more time i know sometimes on the website uh, there is a uh, deep article uh on some of the most uh you know obscure candidates maybe but you know that that all you almost have you have to go and find that that piece so i'm pretty sure that current modern day wrestlers don't don't go on the the observer new newsletter website to read about historical candidate at least most of them anyways so you know there has to be a way to to put the spotlight on those so that you know make it easy for people to uh, learn about their history wow okay so you, there's a couple of different things jumped in my mind okay yeah absolutely dominic danucci was the main guy for so many years down in australia 
helped put Australia on the map as far as being a destination to go. He laid the groundwork for how ethnic heroes got over down there. And then everybody sort of, you know, your Spheres Arions and your Mario Milanos and, and those kind of guys, they needed them down in Australia because of the way the population was. And so you brought in the big villains, your your Killer Kowalskis and uh, those and Buddy Austins and whomever to face them. And and that, that was a formula that worked for many, many years down there in Australia. And I think because it happened down there, uh, Danucci doesn't get the recognition he deserves. And because he decided to settle in, you know, New York and take a job delivering papers and have a pension and all these things and then wrestle on the side and primarily as enhancement talent, he gets knocked down another couple levels because people only remember that. And it's unfair because he headlined out in San Francisco. He headlined, you know, a couple other territories too. But it, it also, you bring up, well, he trained this guy, he trained that guy, but we're not supposed to vote about the whole person. Right. It's supposed to be about his wrestling career. And it, it the same thing comes up in, in hockey. I've made the case many times that Al Rollins, who's the only he's the oldest heart winning trophy player. He was a goalie. So the heart trophy is the, you know, the best player in the league. He's the only one from like the 19. When did he win? 54, I think the only one that's not in the Hall of Fame. And. It's because he ended up doing so many other things afterwards that he probably deserves it. He was a coach. He was a general manager. Just all these things, a, a lifetime in hockey and all kinds of contributions and help develop players. But you don't get a consideration for the actual Hall of Fame because it's just about your in, on-ice career. And so in wrestling, Danucci, yeah, for sure, he trained a lot of guys. But is that going to get him in? I mean, Pat Buck trained a lot of guys too, but I don't think of him as a Hall of Famer. So we have to sort of be able to cut that stuff aside. I don't know. Is that, am I crazy, Brian? It's, it is tough, isn't it? Because you want to give a guy his due, and you know he's more than just that. It, it goes back to what we just talked about with, you know, uh, out-of-ring activities, right? How does that affect your thing? Uh, so the trainers are, are part of that. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I haven't thought too much about the idea of including someone who trained wrestlers and thinking of that and the body of their candidacy and thinking of, you know, this guy wrestled for this many years, did this and this, and he also trained. I will say, I consider a guy who was a great booker, I consider that part of the career. You know, like when I think about Bill Dundee on the ballot, I have to look at what he did as a wrestler, and then I can't ignore the fact that for a year and a half, he was the booker for the most successful period in the history of Mid-South Wrestling. You know, so I, I would include that because he's never going to be on the ballot for being just a booker. I don't think that'll ever happen. But then, you know, it's the way they're classified. You know, Kevin Sullivan just left the ballot. He wasn't on the ballot as a wrestler. He was on the ballot in the non-wrestlers category, which I hadn't even really thought about until uh, one of the other segments we did here. Does that mean you're only supposed to think of Sullivan as a booker? but you're supposed to ignore his entire career as a wrestler? I don't know. So I don't know how how firm or how strict we're supposed to be with the classifications and, you know, how we label someone and do we think about the, you know, Eddie Graham. Do we think about Eddie Graham as just being a Hall of Famer for being one of the Golden Grams and for having a great feud with the great Malenko? Or do we also include the fact that he was a promoter, that he was considered one of the greatest bookers ever? You know, I think there isn't a separate category for that. You know, you brought up people being in multiple times, and it'll probably happen. You know, there are now people, you know, the fabulous ones. If you vote for the fabulous ones, 
You're voting for Stan Lane, who's already in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Terry Gordy's in for the Freebirds. He's not in as a solo wrestler. He's not in as a tag team with Steve Williams. But when you look at all these guys who had a big impact, uh, you know, Toots Mont, I'm assuming he's in just for being a promoter, you know, but he was also a wrestler. Eddie Graham, he was one of the great bookers of all time. He was also a Hall of Fame caliber wrestling star. So I don't know. I mean, I had never thought of it in terms of training before, and I probably should have. What do you think, Bertrand? Well, I think in wrestling, it, it's hard to separate those roles as they interwene so much in between uh, uh, one of the talent's career. I mean, uh, and you, you've put so much great example on the table. I, it, it's very hard. And for me personally, I mean, I cannot consider Bill Dundee or consider Kevin Sullivan without, you know, and cutting their, okay, I have to take that out. I have to take that out. And I have to judge him on only that. For me, I mean, he's, he's it's the package. I mean, can you really judge the career of Kevin Sullivan just on him being the booker or him and the work he, or just the work as a wrestler? I, that doesn't make, that just doesn't compute to me. That's the package. That's, he was a talent on many levels. And I don't, I'm not sure the sport analogy works in wrestling uh, as much as in rest in wrestling. It, it there's an, the athletic part, yes, but it's so much more the creative aspect uh, of, of a talent. Uh, and if he is good enough to become a booker for the whole company, uh, that that just gives him a lot of credit you know, as far as the the creativity and. Uh, once again, we go back to the thing that bugs me the, the most is, you know, I, I the, the being the most in, incredible worker in the world should not be the 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 do all and die all of of the the Hall of Fame. Uh, so you know, and it seems to me that a lot of those candidates are being. Well, you know, he, he checked that box, checked that box, well, but not worker. So. You know, let's put him aside. So it's <laughs> it, it all goes back to what we talked about about, about Kenny Omega, though, doesn't it? If it's yeah. just Japan, he's a great candidate. But like the way that AEW is booked and they only hire their friends and and all that kind of stuff, it makes me really puzzled. That if we look at this in another five years and we look at it as a as a dusty roads kind of thing where they booked it into the ground, you know, Omega goes down by that standard, right? Because you can't, like yeah. you said, you he was a VP of the company that that went tits up well that's you know how we got to say that's the same as as bill dundee he was hugely successful you know as the booker here so birdie you have good points there and there's things i hadn't thought about so i mean we're we're learning stuff here i'm I'm impressed boys (laughs) you don't impress greg oliver easily but we've learned that we've done that today (laughs) but um hey let me ask you guys about some specific candidates on your ballots that uh, i personally have not voted for but I'd like to hear what you guys have to say. Greg, let me go to you. Tell me why you voted for Cowboy Bob Ellis. Because I'm probably one of the few people alive that have talked to him and, and researched him when we did the, the Heroes book. And um, he was a massive star everywhere. Like he was the headliner. And it was just such a simple concept, right? A big lumbering cowboy. So not lumbering in the sense of Tex McKenzie and unable to get in the ring. <laughs> That's right. But just, That's right. but just a big guy that, you know, you immediately had to respect because of how 
you know, he was just an imposing figure and he had that charisma. He had all those things. He also had um, very early merch. You look at, you know, he had pennants and he had buttons and, and all these different kind of things. He really was a pioneer in, in many ways of, of where wrestling was going. And and he also worked down in Australia and all these other places, too. So you do end up with a, a tougher guy to pin down because he didn't stay in Homestead. He wasn't the Bob Armstrong in the same area for years and years, whereas Alice was on top just about everywhere he went. I mean, you couldn't use him any other way. Because he was just such a big guy and he had charisma. And then, you know, do you take a side? And then does he get knocked down a bit because of the horse racing scandal he was involved with? Uh, I bet not one of the voters besides me probably even thought about that. So I, I don't know. It's a fun one to think about, isn't it? It is. And another fun one that I must admit, uh, Bertrand, and I hope you don't hate me for this. I've always seen this person as being just slightly below Hall of Fame level. Not that he wasn't great. Not that he wasn't really good, but I always got to be Rick Martel. I'm talking Rick <laughs> Martel, and I'd love to hear you know because we're all about learning something here today. Why is Rick Martel in your eyes a Hall of Famer? I mean, he he was uh, a star everywhere he went. Uh, the shot near the top or uh, in a major tag team, almost everywhere he went. Uh, from uh, New Zealand, Hawaii, uh, Portland. WWF, AWA, and he was always a ma- um, he became quickly everywhere a major player. Um, I feel that he has left a lasting impression. Even uh, with the wrestling going national, uh, you have to add that to his uh, that feather to his cap. Uh, he had that run with the model that I, I would you know it has as much. Uh, impact on the the, the psyche uh, as the, those gimmick of uh, Coco Beware that you hear all the time, people remembering or anything like that. The model thing, you know, it, it, it struck a chord and people remembers it to this day. So, I mean, even on the national stage box, he checks in. Um, that's my my opinion on it. And he was a tremendous worker uh, for the time. If we want to go into the, the, the Kenny Omega box uh, for, for the time period, Martel in the early 80s was amazing. Uh, so, I mean, I to me, it, it just like uh, uh, over he got everywhere he went. He was a booker as well. Uh, so he was something, someone very creative. He was also someone very involved in trying to get new people going, uh, even though, you know, maybe sometimes that didn't turn out the way uh, Rick was expecting. He, he was still attempting to bring in new people and create new gimmick and teach uh, to, 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 uh, to the audience. And even to a guy like Shawn Michaels and Scott All. Uh, our, our, you know, they mentioned Rick as being one of the good guy, one that that really helped them at some point in their career, and, and before they became the big stars that that they were uh, set to become. So, I mean, to me, I mean, it's uh, just somebody that's been overlooked, and that if you dig a little bit deeper into the different territories he went to, the success he had everywhere, uh, culminating with the last what I would call the last great AWA run as a champion. And then, you know, the WWF run with the strike force and the model. I mean, even that national uh, fame, he, he checked that box at the end. So I think that's somebody that should be uh, 
reconsidered by a lot of people. Bertrand, would you still vote for Rick Martel if tomorrow morning you woke up and there was an article on slamwrestling.net that said he was really born in Ontario? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> we just want to clarify that. <laughs> I, I will want to say that Rick Martel is also one of those Hall of Fame people, too. And I think that affects us to a little degree because Bert and I both know him. And just the respect I have for him as a person and just the idea that, you know, he and his wife decided not to have kids until they settled down after wrestling. I mean, what a brilliant idea, like actually thinking about how nasty this business is on families. And we all know the stories of so many of the disruptive and and dysfunctional families in pro wrestling. So Rick sort of avoided some of that. And But again, we should be just voting on apparently in-ring stuff, right? I don't know. Well, guys, as we begin to wrap things up, let me ask you guys what you think about the future going forward with the Hall of Fame. Is there anyone you're looking to really push hard for, really look forward to voting for next year? And we've touched on a lot of things here, but if there was one change you could make to the Hall of Fame or the process of voting for the Hall of Fame, what would it be? Let me start with you, Bertrand. Well, I think I mentioned it a few times already, but I think 35 is clearly too young. Uh, so, I mean, I think a jump uh, or 50, like I said, seems to me like the obvious choice to try to uh, stop the, the influx of new national talent more recent that a lot of the voter knows personally or I've uh, worked with and that, that, you know, to give those candidates more perspective and time. And what about you, Greg? Uh, I, I think it breaking it out a couple more different ways, the Japan, Mexico, I mean, you've got to rate the women in a different way than you do the men, uh, you know, and even we talked about a Trish status. Well, I mean, you can't really compare what Trish Stratus did and meant and she wasn't on my ballot. I don't think she's a Hall of Famer. I don't think she lasted that long. Or I'm not saying she's not influential. But, you know, it's hard to compare them to, you know, what The Rock did, even though they're there at the same time. And just like a June Byers was on my list and, and you know, was, you know, the, the most important wrestler, woman wrestler in years, she's no Cowboy Bob Ellis. They never get the chance to headline territory and, and stay there for a long period of time. So it's it's really unfair to compare them to you know the way the men are and maybe that goes to the tag teams maybe that goes to the midgets so maybe the pro wrestling hall of fame was on the right idea where you break up people in different categories um and we have the non-wrestler category so there's uh an example uh they also added a um what they call it a colleagues category i think they where they can have referees or they can have uh you know people like your george napolitanos right uh that that maybe should be considered so, you know, it, those are just different ideas I'm throwing out there. And I, I will support Bertrand on the idea that, uh, you know, I think the idea they, they need to be older, right, than 35, uh, especially today with the way the world has changed. And, and they should be able to keep themselves in better shape for longer and be stay on top longer. And one final question for you guys, because you just brought up George Napolitano, and obviously he is one of the great photographers in wrestling history. There have been so many, Theo Errett and... We can go down the list, but something we've talked about in other segments on this show is historians. You know, Jim Melby's on the list. I don't think he's on the list for being an editor at the Wrestling News. He's on the list for much more than that. Should other historians be eligible for the Hall of Fame? We've talked about how maybe there should be a 
historian class for some of the voting specific to historical wrestlers, but should a J. Michael Kenyon, should a Fred Hornby, should a Clawmaster, should people like that, should they be on the Hall of Fame ballot? What do you think, Rug? I, it's either got to be a separate category or not at all. I, I do like, you know, with the idea that the CAC and, and the um, the Waterloo Hall of Fame have, have both created categories to support these kind of people, because without the historians, the people that, you know, keep history alive, these guys don't exist anymore. Um, and, and that's just a fact. I, we're not going to be able to vote on some of these names in the past unless we produce these books, unless we do some of these things, write the articles on the online and whatever. So I think from that perspective, for sure, I mean, wrestling needs that. Whether they need to be in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, I don't really think that's important to any historian. You just want to, you know, do the work and, and share the knowledge and hopefully make a buck or two, right, Bert? There it is, parts one and two of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame special for 2020. I want to thank everyone, all the great historians who appeared on this show. We really appreciate them sharing their ballots, sharing their insights, and hopefully you at home have really enjoyed this show. Maybe learned something, hopefully learned something, but we really enjoy doing this show each and every year, and we hope everyone has enjoyed listening to it. Until next time. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For all of our guests, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!